The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field team. Bam going back, looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. It's one out. Pete he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. I got to admit to everybody, I think the KBO is fabulous. It's so much fun watching Korean baseball. South Korea, they're having a good time. They have a good time. I mean, they have flair. Kind of reminds me of, like, the Caribbean World Series. But they got flair. They got swag. I don't care that there's no one in the ballpark. Makes no difference to me. After a while, when you're watching it, you don't really even notice it. It's not like I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, there's no one in the ballpark. It's like you're watching a scrimmage. It's like if you, you if you were on the backfield of a spring training game, there's no fans. You don't need fans. I, I Cody, do you see yourself watching the game and you just I, I don't even think about the fans. I ain't being there. Uh, I really enjoyed it watching the first game that was on ESPN Monday Monday night for us, Tuesday morning for the East Coast. I enjoyed it. I thought Carl Ravitch and Eduardo Perez did a fantastic job dealing through technical difficulties and. You know, the people they brought on, their mics weren't working and all this. You know, they, they had a good time. They had a great time calling the game, and it was exciting to see baseball back on the field. Yeah, it's not what we're used to here in the U.S. with the flair and, you know, the excitement with – uh well, I guess there's not really – all sometimes all, not that much excitement in Major League Baseball with all the walks and everything and, you know, length of games. But these games over there, we saw a game that went just a little over two hours. I'm sure that got a lot of people excited who are watching – here and in Korea, because that's a uh, that's you know that's a casual game for them, just going two hours. But the bat flips is uh, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I have been enjoying the most. And the guy, the first pitch bubble, which was pretty cool. Yeah, the kid in the bubble that walked up the first pitch. How about the umpires and their dramatic strike three calls? The lawnmower one. That that one was great. <laughs> These guys play an entertaining game. Are these bat flip and these? Uh, you know we love bat flipping Mark Canna. Mark Canna's got nothing on these guys. These guys, I. You know what? We're trying to get Eric Thames on. Bay Area kid went to Bellarmine. Who, who's who, he's with uh, the Rangers now? He's with the uh, the World Series champion Washington Nationals. He's with the Nationals now. Okay, yeah, coming from uh, the Brewers. I want to know. If anybody has gotten hurt in the on-deck circle because of a bat flip. Because these guys' bat flips are just so dramatic. And you're flinging this piece of wood. I wonder if anybody's ever been smoked. If it ever been, anybody got hit in the dugout. Because some of these guys, they let the thing fly. And I wonder 
And once we get this thing going again, when we get to talk to, you know, we get a steady dose of talking to the players. Like, could this change Major League Baseball? Where they go, hey, these pitchers are not, these pitchers are not yelling at players and, you know, getting mad and throwing at the next guy. You gave up a home run, so what? It's entertainment. That was one thing that Sandy Alderson, I thought when we had Sandy on, he mentioned it multiple times about this is entertainment. This is what it is. What if this changes Major League Baseball to be like, hey, all you curmudgeons, you're here to entertain the folks. And if Mike Trout hits a bomb and does a big bat flip, wear it. Get him out if you don't like it. Make the game more entertaining. Have flair. This this is, you want to get the younger generation. If I want to get people like Cody more into baseball, start playing like these guys. They got flair. They got swag. And play faster games. Because you're going to have an opportunity. This is a one-time shot. If Major League Baseball is listening. It's a one-time shot for you to be the one sport that can play every day and entertain people every single day. This is your one shot to get back to being the national pastime. Golf can't play every day. NASCAR can't play every day. At some point, we're going to get tired of the KBO. We want our baseball back. This is your shot. And if you come back with flair, swag, having fun, I don't, the advertising, the advertisement, how about the one guy uh, the other night, the shortstop, he had advertisements on his helmet. I don't care. That might be something that, hey, baseball needs to make money. So the players can get paid. Cody and I can get paid. You, you want to put Samsung on the, on the helmet? Go right ahead. But this is your chance. And I wish, I wish every player, you could talk to every player and go, hey, man, go out and have a good time. Entertain the people. That's your job. That's the mission for 2020. And watch how many people will fall in love with the game again because it's going to be the only thing they can watch that will not be negative, will not have dramatic opinions, and it'll be every day. That's what's great about baseball. It's played every single day. Scott Boris, the power broker, the biggest agent in baseball, was on Get Up on ESPN, their morning show, produced by Paul Himikides Himbo, our guy, who comes on every Monday. This is what Scott Boris had to say about starting the season. If baseball is going to come back as soon as possible, it seems likely the players are going to be, for lack of a better word, kind of separated from the rest of society for a reasonable significant period of time, including possibly their families. What hesitation have you heard from your players regarding that? Well, I think we have to set up models as we do in, in medicine, and that is you, you can 
certainly head to spring training. And I think players that I've certainly that I represent have all said they're willing to to look at this for 30 days and, and be isolated and, and, and phase in spring training with, say, pitchers and catchers first. I think one of the things we have to consider, Mike, though, is that we, we need to do this. Uh, we need to have a little longer spring training because the players have been isolated. This is a very unique setting that they've been in for the last 50 days, and we need a little more conditioning time. We need more time to before we get to the skill part of the game uh, than we have in the past. So it's a very different process. But but I, I I think one thing that's clear is that we've we have involved the the people. They're going to have doctors there. They're going to have their trainers there. Uh, the isolation aspect, I think the players are willing to do to really take every precaution as we test before they go, test when they arrive, and, and really create an environment that we can, after a 30-day or so period, let everyone know that this, this group is healthy. Uh, we also have an international community that we have to do well in advance because we have to bring them here and, and, and get a look at, at where they're at, and that may be additional time. We have to have isolation spaces for those who test positive, and we also have to have um, you know, I, I think a, a period of time for those to integrate back in. So it, it's uh, it's going to take a little bit more time, I think, than the norm to to bring baseball back and get players ready. And then I think during that time we can decide what the schedule can be because one thing we're learning about this, the more time we spend studying the virus and collecting the medical information, the more efficient of a schedule I think we can have. And And we also have the month of October that we can use as a regular season now by the players agreement. So I, I think we can put together something that can, can really help America. <laughs> you know, you're probably like me and I've been watching the news and we've been watching the news now for how many days and I'm flipping around all these different channels and everybody's flip-flopping. Everybody's flip-flopping. We didn't need masks. Now we need masks. Their projections are all over the board. Their opinions all over the board. And why am I bringing Scott Boris into that? Because Scott Boris recently was the guy saying, hey, everybody needs to get be paid. Everybody needs to get paid full boat. Oh, but now we need a longer spring training. Now we need to take some time. Not too long ago, Scott, you were barking about how everybody should get paid no matter how many games they get paid, they play. They play 100 games, you still should get that $30 million. But now, hey, whoa, we got to wait. We got to wait. Everybody we've talked to has been working out. These guys are all working out. Stop it. The Hall of Famer, one of the great TV broadcasters in the history of American sports and American television, Bob Costas is here on A's Cast Live. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time. Obviously, we're all big fans. Thanks so much. And I can tell you, so my wife knows nothing about sports. And Mm -hmm. normally when I tell her who's coming on, she has no idea. But when I said you were coming on, my wife goes, you're going to have Bob Costas on? So that's, you know, when you've had a really good career. When people don't even know sports, know who you are. (laughs) Well, the Olympics has something to do with that because a lot of people who aren't really avid sports fans nonetheless follow the Olympics, and I did a dozen of them. And then luckily during most of my 
NBC career. It was the biggest events. It was the World Series, the NBA Finals, the Super Bowl, Sunday night football, the Kentucky Derby. So those things kind of pull in the casual viewers as well. So I guess I was very often just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, what was it like? I've always wanted to ask you this. What was it like, the preparation, the Olympics? This is the big, biggest event. Everybody in the world's watching. What was it like to be a part of that? Specifically the Olympics? Yeah. Yeah, well, one of the things I learned after the first couple I did, and this was a great relief. It took a lot of the stress away. I learned what you didn't have to know. I came to understand you don't have to know every pole vaulter from Slovakia or every platform diver from Peru. That's what the people who are assigned to that specific event and venue have to know everything about. The host has to have a good overview of that particular Olympics and the two dozen or so stories that are likely to get most of the coverage in prime time. You have to have a good grasp of the history of the Olympics a good frame of reference when it comes to that, and know more than a little bit about the host city and the host country. But you shouldn't get bogged down with every race walker from Romania or, or every swimmer from Australia. Um, that, that kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, and, yeah, and we're, we've been watching The Last Dance, uh, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Have you been watching that? And obviously you live that. Yeah, I've watched every minute of it, and I'm very impressed. It's terrific storytelling. Jason Hare, who led the production team and that entire team, ESPN gave them plenty of time. They gave them plenty of resources, and they've really maximized it. They've done a great job. You know, I've been I've been watching MLB Network. Of course, we're all MLB Network junkies. And watching you with Tom Verducci, Tim McCarver, and Joe Torre going over the 2001 World Series, and hopefully we're mm. going to have our – our, our, our old friend, Matt Williams, who's managing in South Korea. You know, we, we've had him on the program quite a bit, uh, and he was a part of that series. What a great World Series that was. And to have Joe Torrey there talking about all – how much fun have you had looking at all these classic games? Well, that series goes back to 2011. That's when we selected the 20 greatest games of the modern television era from 1960 on. And almost all of them were postseason games with – a few exceptions. And what really seems to still work is you can pull those off the shelf and all the networks are having to pull a lot of stuff, archival stuff off the shelves during this strange period of time. It still works. It worked in 2011 when that World Series was a decade old. It works now when it's almost two decades old. You see all the important plays, but what distinguishes it from just simply replaying the entire game is that you have some of the key principles sitting there and recollecting the strategy, some of the specifics that might have escaped you when you were just watching the game, even if you were covering the game. There's always some inside baseball there. And then there's the emotion that they felt, either the exhilaration when it went well or, uh, or the letdown when it, when it didn't. And talking about that World Series and talking to Joe Torre, uh, the Yankees had gone through a, a rather remarkable season. They beat the Seattle Mariners, who won 116 games that year, they beat them in the LCS. And all of this comes after 9-11, uh, and the city is traumatized. And even people who tend to root against New York and specifically root against a team like the Yankees, they coalesced around the Yankees. The Yankees became a sympathetic team. 
in no small part because of Joe Torre and people like Derek Jeter. It was very difficult to dislike this Yankee team, and especially in the aftermath of 9-11. So many dramatic things happened. President Bush went walking out to the mound before Game 3, and people were still jittery about attending a big event in New York, and he threw a perfect strike from the mound, and it kind of energized everything and uplifted the country. And then during that World Series, in the fourth and fifth games of the series, the Yankees tied the game in each case on a two-out home run in the bottom of the ninth, first by Tino Martinez and then by Scott Brocious. Then there was the Mr. November home run, the first World Series game played after November 1st, after the clock struck midnight and Derek Jeter hit the walk-off home run. So Torrey and the Yankees had all this exhilaration and all of the emotion surrounding 9-11 that took them to Game 7. And they go to the bottom of the ninth in Game 7 with a lead and Mariano Rivera on the mound. And it looked like it was going to be another Yankee victory. And then it slipped away. So you talk about the roller coaster of emotions. Hard to imagine more dips and turns uh, than Joe Torre went through that October. You know, we've been talking a lot about the 70s A's. We're going to get into 1989. Uh, you were a part of the broadcast. And speaking mm-hmm. of the last dance, it's, it's hard to compare eras and teams from other sports. But the way there was a common enemy in Jerry Krause with the Bulls, those great A's teams, the dynasty, it was Charlie Finley was their common enemy. And he had great players. What do you remember about the three straight World Series teams for the A's in 72, 73, and 74? Well, I was still in college then, so I didn't have a press pass. I didn't cover any of it, but I've always been an avid baseball fan. And this is pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-sports talk as we know it. But even then, it was pretty clear that things were a little unorthodox, shall we say, in Oakland surrounding those teams. But whatever conflict there may have been, managerial changes even after winning world championships, players at one another's throats, everybody upset with Finley, no matter what, controversy there may have been they were the best team in baseball for that stretch uh that three-year stretch they were they were just terrific and they won dramatic games and they became for that period of time a a national team now when you fast forward to the late 80s and early 90s when they went to three straight world series you could make a case that that was an even better team but in baseball uh a best of five or a best of seven can be a crapshoot so they only won one of those three World Series. Otherwise, that team, Tony La Russa's team, would be in the conversation among the great teams in the modern era. No doubt. And, and it and still should be. It still should be, really. Yeah, it, it, we're going to start breaking it down because we, we, we are airing games here on NBC Sports California of the 70s games. We're now going to hopefully start doing 1989. You know, they lose to the Dodgers, and what a great run by Oral Hersizer in 1988. But they go to spring training saying, that's not going to happen. We're going to win the World Series. They had great confidence. What do you remember about doing those games? Because we just watched one of those games, uh, ALCS, Blue Jays, and A's. Yeah, in 88, they were clearly the best team. But the Mets were a better team than the Dodgers, and the Dodgers beat them in seven games. And I remember thinking before the first game of that World Series, if somehow the Dodgers can steal the first game against Dave Stewart, Oral Hershiser is going to pitch game two. And that was back in an era where guys could come back on three days rest. So he could conceivably pitch games two and five, which he did. So even though the Dodgers were substantial underdogs, 
if they could steal that first game, there was a really good chance they could go to Oakland up two games to none. And that's exactly what happened. The miracle home run by Kirk Gibson, then Hershiser, who was not just Cy Young great, he was invincibly great uh, in the last half of uh, the 1988 season. He shut them down in game two. He closed the series out in game five. They stole another game in game four. The only game the A's won, as you guys remember, was on a Mark McGuire walk-off against Jay Howell in game three. And then Lasorda pulled every rabbit out of the hat in game four. He gave guys the hit sign on 3-0, and and they homered. He pulled a suicide squeeze. He did everything. And somehow they won game four. That's, that's baseball. So here are, the, here are the A's. In 88, they're the best team. In 89, Tony Kubek and I did the ALCS, and they pretty much had their way with a very good uh, Toronto Blue Jay team, beat them in five. And then you get the earthquake series, which the earthquake itself, the so-called earthquake series. So for 10 days, they had to sit and wait. But then they went on to sweep the Giants. And then the next year, again, they're the best team, but they get swept by the Cincinnati Reds. Ask Tony LaRusso about it. And then you, ha- you realize that in 2006 and in 2011, he won World Series with the Cardinals when there's no way that the Cardinals over the course of the season were the best team in the National League or the best team in baseball, but with a different playoff set up and they got hot at the right time and they won it. The baseball gods, when it comes to Tony La Russa, who's obviously a Hall of Fame manager, they've smiled on him on some occasions, luckily for him toward the end of his career, and other times the baseball gods were cruel to him. Yeah, we've had Tony on the program, and he talks about it's a disappointment that they only won one. But this one team, because I'm in high school at the time, I'm playing Mm -hmm. baseball, they were rock stars to me. I mean, when you start looking at the big personalities, you know, where where we're going with cable television at the time, you got Canseco, Ricky Henderson, they trade for him, Sandy Alderson gets him back, and Eckersley. I mean, it was just, what, what was the team like from a standpoint of stardom? Oh, they were, as you put it, they were rock stars. And obviously, McGuire, were it not for his involvement in PEDs, he would have had a Hall of Fame career. His statistics would not have been what they were at their most inflated, but he would have had a Hall of Fame career. Canseco uh, was the first 40-40 guy. But of all the players on that team, and there were some really good players, I mean, Walt Weiss was a good player, Terry Steinbach, Steinbach was a good player, Carney Lansford was a batting champion at one point in his career. Dave Stewart was one of the best starting pitchers of his era. But the two greatest players, when you really look at it objectively, were Dennis Eckersley at that point in his career and Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson is the greatest leadoff man in baseball history. And in that 89 LCS against the Blue Jays, he just dominated the whole series. He'd get on first base, steal second, steal third. The entire defense was jittery. Pitcher couldn't concentrate on the hitter. It was, he was a presence from, from the moment he stepped on the field. When he was in the on-deck circle, you know, or he gets ahead in the count 2-0, and you got to groove one to him because you can't risk walking him. He was, he was as much of a presence as a baseball player can be. You know, you think about it, a, a baseball player comes up once every nine hitters. He's out there in left field. Maybe they hit the ball to him. Maybe they don't. It's not the same thing as basketball where a guy like Michael Jordan can be a presence every moment he's on the floor. You felt like Ricky Henderson was a presence every minute of every game at that stage of his career. Let's end on this. Today's a really big day for Major League Baseball as at 10 o'clock tonight here on the West Coast on ESPN, we're going to see 
baseball in South Korea. Just mm-hmm. in baseball history, how important is it that this works in South Korea? I don't know. Uh, I'll be interested to see, but I don't know if it will resonate with American audiences. Obviously, people are hungry for any sort of sports competition. Some of them are watching uh, people play horse at a distance on ESPN or on the NBA network. Uh, So we'll see uh, if this has any traction at all. I I haven't really looked up and down the rosters. I don't know if there's anybody that would jump out that would be in the category of a Sadaharu O. I realize that's Japan, but you know what I'm saying. There are some people uh, who excel outside the United States and outside our major leagues that uh, are worthy of attention. I think how these games are covered uh, with with the coverage surrounding it, I don't know that the the announcers, are they going to take Korean announcers with subtitles or are they assigning ESPN announcers to it? I don't know. I just, uh, for yeah, all neither, do, neither do I, but my, my point is somebody has got to make it, got, has to explain and set the stage to the American viewer. You know, who are these people? Who are the best players? What's at stake here? Uh, otherwise you're just watching guys swing a bat and run around the bases. Well, during these trying times, we're trying to bring on familiar voices because I think it helps people here in Northern California where we're, we're cooped up in our homes and your voice is one of the most familiar we got Thank you so much for the time. It's an absolute honor. Be well, and hopefully once the baseball season starts, we can start talking about Major League Baseball. Boy, we all hope so. Thanks a lot for having me on. Take care. Bye. Now joining us here on A's Cast Live, he was a terrific A, and we rooted for him all the way through the World Series. He's a two-time All-Star and now a World Series champion. The great Sean Doolittle is back. It's great to hear you. How are you down in Florida? What's up, Tony? Thanks for having me. Um, we're doing okay, man. We're we're hanging in there. We are uh, we're safe down here in Florida right now. Uh, once the season got delayed, it just really felt like less moving parts to get all of our stuff and our dogs home. And you know, we weren't sure about the timetable of of this delay. So we're staying here in Florida. We can, I can take advantage of the weather and, and get outside and improvise workouts and try to stay in shape. So uh, we're doing okay. You know, they've been airing games from 2012 and it's amazing. You look like you're like, you're like a little kid out there compared to what you look <laughs> like now. <laughs> and that's how I felt too, man. I mean, everything, um, you know, I was 25, uh, during that run and, um, I, I might've turned 26 by the time the season ended. Um, I forget the timeline. My birthday's at the end of September. So, um, but like everything, the, the route I took to get to the big leagues, um, I was just so happy to be there and everything was so new. I was, I was so bright eyed and, um, just kind of in awe of everything and trying to soak it all in and enjoy it as much as I possibly could. I felt my whole, uh, I've, I've worked my whole career to try to get that mindset back, man. Cause I was just so in the moment and, and enjoying every second of it and soaking it all in. I will never forget you coming up. I did your first radio interview and I remember telling you, this is like a Disney story. I mean, here you were supposed <laughs> to be the first baseman. I mean, that every you know, we followed you through the minor leagues. We thought you were going to be the guy. Then all of a sudden, your career's done. Then all of a sudden, you're pitching. And you <laughs> rode through the system so fast. 
and all of a sudden you're up throwing in these meaningful games. You've only pitched one year, and you're pitching in huge games. The story is actually crazy when you look back. It is. It, it, trust me, like I, it's given me an incredible amount of perspective um, looking back on my career and, and uh, thinking about how close – it all came to almost not happening for me at all. And I'm incredibly grateful um, for the A's, the way that they handled my transition to pitching, uh, the way that uh, I, I worked with, with Garvin Alston all summer in 2011 in Arizona when I was uh, handling a, a wrist injury and um, shoot, even just the the growth I went through in the big leagues in 2012, you know, when I first got called up, um, I wasn't allowed to pitch back-to-back games for like the first like month or so that I was in Oakland. And and I look back on it now, the the and I think about maybe the the stress I might have added onto some of the other guys in the bullpen to pick up that slack. But you know, by the end of the season, I pitched the last four games in a row and. Um, that growth, um, the confidence that Bob Melvin showed in me, um, really laid the groundwork for my entire career. Yeah. And, and, and it was such a fun time because at one point the A's were like 13 and a half games back. And it was like, just reel in the Rangers, just get them there for that last series and sweep mm-hmm. that series. And it's the only time in the history of baseball. Think about this. The only time in the history of baseball where a team won the division and they never, they won the division and never led the division because you didn't lead the division until that final out, the final <laughs> game, 162. It's crazy to think about. It is. It's crazy to think about. And the way that we did it um, that year in 2012 with the, all the walk-offs, I mean, I've never been a part of anything like that um, really since then. There were, there were a number of similarities uh, between that 2012 A's team and the 2019 Nationals team that went on to win the World Series. Um, the hole that both teams, we kind of dug ourselves in the first half. I remember in 2012, we got back to 500 um, the day before the All-Star break. Um, and with the Nationals in 2019, um, that was like our goal. We, we were, we were so um, we had dug ourselves such a big hole in May that that was kind of like an arbitrary goal that we had set for ourselves. Let's get back to 500 at the all-star break and then see what we can make happen in the second half. And uh, we were, I think we were able to get maybe three or five games above 500 by the time we rolled into the break. But the, the way that momentum carried over to the second half, there were a lot of similarities there. We didn't, the Nationals team last year, we didn't have the walk-offs. Uh, we didn't have the, uh, a lot of the drama um, and exciting, um, you know, come-from-behind wins that the 2012 A's team did. But there were so many similarities there where you get that feeling late in the game. Maybe it's the sixth or seventh inning and the game's kind of hanging in the balance and you're, I'm sitting down there in the bullpen and, and everybody has the same feeling where you're like, I don't know how we're going to pull this off. But we're just I know we're gonna find a way to, to pull to, to pull this game out. I know we're gonna find a way to win. Um, and so the, there's a lot of similarities there that uh, you know Zuke and I talked about uh, quite a bit. so it was fun to kind of go through that again. but all those walk-offs, man, I've never been a part of anything like that. 
You know, your teammate Kurt Suzuki and I go way back. I remember one of my favorite interviews with him was in Japan, and I know what it meant for him as a Japanese-American to play in Japan and how much the crowd loved him. And then, you know, a few years ago, he was with the Twins, and I was interviewing him in the uh, dugout, and he was talking about Townie. I think this is it for me. I'm not going to play. Any-. And I'm like, are you going to coach? What are you going to do? And to think that he's now still playing after that conversation. <laughs> like, wow. Recently, we just had – because we're, we're covering every single team and we're, we're getting ready. You know, we're going through every single division. And we went through the East and we had Chip Hale on, who, you know, been your coach for many years. I can tell you, Ace, yeah, we hate the Astros, but more importantly, we were just rooting for you guys because you guys are Oakland A's. And Kurt Suzuki and Chip Hale and yourself, it was great to see you guys win the World Series. Just just looking back, I mean, how special. I mean, you're a World Series champion now. Uh, I, it's so – there's so many – there's so many cool storylines about like our World Series championship um, that make it, you know, feel even more special than I ever could have imagined. And and one of those for me is is my connection with Zook. Um, you know, he caught my debut in 2012, and I, I worked with him so well early in my career. And and he was a big reason why he kept putting. Uh, you know, a number one down and he kept calling for the fastball and he's such a big reason why I was able to develop um, some confidence early on in my career because, hey, if, if you know, Zook had a reputation at that time of being one of the, the better defensive catchers in the game and, and he, I saw him always the first one to the ballpark and he was doing so much preparation and putting together game plans and scouting reports and he knew the opponents better than uh, anybody. And if he had the confidence in me to, to continue putting that number one down, um, then I had a lot of confidence throwing it. And, um, ultimately, you know, fast forward to 2019 and I'm sharing a, a, um, a, a bus with him during the world series parade going down constitution Avenue in DC. And, um, you think about the, the 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 road that both of our careers have taken since the that first time we worked together in 2012 and for us to come together again in DC and win a world series and share a uh, a bus in the parade it's just it's incredible man you can't you can't script it you can't make it up uh, but it definitely was one of those things that made it feel so incredibly meaningful and so special that was beyond anything that I ever could have imagined when it comes to the emotions of winning a world series. You know, you're one of those guys that uh, you're a better person than you are a ball player. Cause all the things that you and your wife have done for people over the years, I say the same thing to Liam Hendricks, you know, some people, you know, they just want to make their communities better. And you're one of those guys. And I think being in DC, very interesting for you. How many like big time politicians, uh, celebrities, do you run into when, when, you know, whether it's at the ballpark or beyond the ballpark playing in Washington, D.C.? Um, not as many as I, as I thought that there would be. Um, and the team, so like the team kind of keeps that stuff, or at least that part of D.C. very separate, I think, from the team um, and maybe gives the players, um, it maybe gives the players some protection, I think. Um, from that, uh, you know, so like 
it wasn't like I thought it was going to be where like, you know, there's like, there's not, it's not like there's like congressmen on the field uh, during batting practice, you know, like standing behind the cage and stuff like that. Um, but there are some times where, um, you know, they, they might say like, Hey, um, you know, so-and-so is here. Would you like a chance to meet them? And they'll take you to a, a another spot. Uh, maybe it's a little more private and, um, maybe give you some of that protection. But um, I got to meet um, one of the highlights for me. I got to meet Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Supreme Court Justice, uh, uh, later last season. I think it was in September. And that was that was really, really special to me. I got to meet John Lewis um, uh, from Georgia, um, civil rights, civil rights icon. And, and that was really special. Um, you know, but there's also, there were also some really cool people I got to meet during the World Series run. Uh, we had Bill Nye at the stadium at Nats Park. Um, he's DC native, a Nats fan, which for me as a nerd was, uh, was really, really special. Um, Jose Andres, um, a celebrity chef that does a, he does so much in the community and he has a lot of ties to DC. Uh, he threw out the first pitch before game five and that it was really special to meet him. Um, Dave Bautista, which people might know from WWE, or they might know him from Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, he's a Nats fan, uh, DC native as well. Um, and that was, so that was really cool. But, you know, that's, it, 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 I don't know, it, it, it was um, World Series run. It's all part of the experience. So uh, I was trying to soak it in and, and enjoy it as much as I could. You know, I was just there in February. We did the, like this history tour with my twins. We went to the White House, the U.S. Capitol building. We did all the Smithsonian's. We went out to Mount Vernon, George Washington's house. It's just, it's D.C. is such a special area. It, it, it's, and then we went up to Philadelphia and Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and then on to New York. But you know, just to, to learn all the history, it's like I always advise people, you need to go for yourself and you need to take your kids so you understand how this country was built. I totally agree. And and there's in D.C., um, before I had ever got traded over, my wife and I had rolled through there a couple times um, in the off season. Uh, we would be back on the East Coast um, a couple times. I We were either going to or from a trip that led us to the University of Virginia. And uh, we stopped in D.C. for a couple days. And, I mean, the museums there are too free not to take advantage of. I mean, yeah. as a like I said, I'm, I, I'm a nerd. I, I'm a history geek. Like, I love that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I think it's I think it's important that people get a chance to to head there, check it out, um, the National Mall and, and everything like that. But I would I would encourage people to venture out beyond that. Um, my wife was the first to bring it to my attention. She said uh, once we got traded there in 2017 that she really felt a lot of similarities between D.C. and um, Oakland or, um, you know, the, the Bay in general. Um, the, the pride that people have for their communities, uh, the way that they fight for their community, um, the, uh, the energy and the creativity and the way that these people are investing in, in their city and their neighborhoods, uh, trying to revive them and, and bring them back. There's a, there's a lot of similarities there. So we fell into it. We fell into it seamlessly and, and uh, we've been very lucky. 
you know, we had your wife on, on our program. She was becoming like a TV star in the Bay Area. Is uh, she, <laughs> she still doing media? No, no. The, the closest thing that, that we've had since um, since coming over here to the to the Nationals and the organization, um, <laughs> we've and it, it's kind of a product of of the time that we're living in. We we started a fake talk show called It's Lit, um, where um, uh, during the quarantine, we the episodes have been uh, posted on the Nationals Twitter and Instagram pages, and um, you know, initially at the beginning of the season, the Nationals came to me and said, would you be interested in doing like a, a video series about some of the books that you've been reading, uh, given some reviews and some insights. And so I said, yeah, sure. And so like once the quarantine hit, they, they asked me for to submit a video and <laughs> we came back with a, with a talk show type situation where Aaron was peppering me with questions and we, uh, we were riffing uh, and doing some, some jokes and stuff like that. And, I didn't. I don't know if that's what they signed up for, but that's what they got, and I've, we've been lucky that they've embraced it. They've continued to post the shows, so um, you know, like I said, it's more of a product of the time that we've kind of found ourselves in. You know, let's end on this. You guys, I guess, have decided as teammates that you don't want to do the ring ceremony, which is always one of the great things. I mean, you have this ring that you celebrate, and World Series rings are just—they're the best that you guys don't want to do that celebration until fans can be a part of that. I think that's pretty cool because mm -hmm. I know, you know, baby shark and everything that you guys had, which was incredible, but your fans were such a big part of what you guys were able to accomplish. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, um, I've talked to um, some former, maybe former teammates, friends of mine, guys I've played with that have won world series themselves in the past. And, they all said that um, the the World Series really crystallizes in your mind and, and really comes into focus when you finally get the World Series ring. That's like the last thing. But the run through the playoffs and the World Series, it, it happened so fast. Um, it, it's just it's so there's so many emotions and there's so much adrenaline that there's a lot going on and it takes a long time to sink in. Um, after it's all done and you, you know, you spend the off season try, trying to really come to grips with what it's like and what it means to be a world series champion. Um, for me, I had been a part of some really good teams, um, division winning teams that had won 95, 97 games, uh, that never made it unfortunately past the first round of the playoffs. And for me personally, I was starting to wonder if this was anything I would ever get close to. Um, and I was like, I just don't, there's so much that has to go right, that has to go your way. It's so hard to do. And for us as a team, uh, this was everybody on the team. This was their first World Series. This was our first ring. This was it. We were all going through this for the first time. The only other player uh, on the team that had a ring was was Hunter Strickland. Um, and he, he wasn't on the active roster for the World Series. So everybody that was on the active roster for the World Series, this was their first ring. We had a couple of guys that had played in the World Series, but nobody had won it. Um, and I think the way that this team connected with the fan base in D.C., um, the way that the fans turned out for the World Series parade, uh, it wouldn't feel right to celebrate this one last time without them. So um, it'll be worth the wait when we do get those rings. Um, it'll be it'll be worth the wait. It's going to be a special celebration. You know, it's the first World Series in Nats history. 
you know the organization's going to pull out all the stops and do it right. So um, it'll be worth the wait when we finally get to get to see them. Nobody's seen them. Nobody's seen the rings. Um, the organization kind of kept it a secret. They had uh, only a few people uh, at the top uh, of the organization that were working on the, the designs and that really had um, an idea of what they're going to look like. So it's going to be a, a really cool surprise when we finally get to see it for the first time. Well, as someone that can actually say, I've seen you from the start, to watch you grow as a baseball <laughs> player, uh, to watch you grow as a man, and knowing everything that you and your wife do away from the field to, to make people's lives better, uh, I, I, I'm a huge fan, and it's great to have you on. And what we've been trying to do is bring on familiar voices because I think it, it helps heal people as we got a lot of A's and baseball fans listening here in Northern California, and obviously you're a familiar voice. Thank you for coming on. Be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Tony. Um, I honestly, uh, I, I, I say this uh, as genuinely as I could possibly say it, that I, I wouldn't be at this point in my career without um, the time that I spent in the athletics organization. So I always have a special place in my heart for the green and gold. And um, I, I continue to follow the team and, um, you know, uh, I like I said, I, I appreciate you having me on. I hope everybody out there in the Bay in California is staying safe and, and staying healthy. And hopefully we'll have uh, baseball for you guys at some point. Well, now joining us once again here on A's Cast Live, it's the big left-hander, Sean Mania. Last time he was here talking about his no-hitter against the Boston Red Sox. Now he's delivering food to people who are out there busting their you-know-what for us and the frontline workers, whether it's Oakland, EMS, or firefighters in San Francisco. Sean, thank you for coming on again. And, and by the way, what a great gesture by, gesture by you to do this for these people who are putting their lives on the line for us. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's just a small gesture and, um, you know, it's the least that I, I can do for, uh, for everyone. So it's, uh, you know, I'm glad I could help, um, you know, in a small way. I know you're up in San Francisco recently and it, you know, what's it like these people's reaction when they get this gesture from you? What is it like? Uh, well, so my, uh, my girlfriend, she works, uh, she's a, um, EMT right now, but a paramedic for uh, San Francisco fire. And, um, yeah, I don't know when I told her that I was uh, thinking about doing that, you know, she was, uh, just really excited and, um, you know, she's, you know, tell me that, uh, everybody else would be, uh, ex you know, excited that, you know, we got recognized too. And, and, uh, you know, these guys are out there on the front lines and, and, uh, you know, doing, putting in work. So it's, uh, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, uh, you know, nice to give back in, uh, just this, this little way that I can. You know what's so special about it, and I, and I know you say it's a small gesture, but really for them, it just goes to show once again how much people appreciate them. And you're seeing this all over the country where people are applauding them as they come from work or go to work. And this gesture that you have done lets them know that we're thinking about them and we care about them. And I think that's why it's so special. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's you know pretty much everybody else is. Uh, um, you know, without a job right now, not doing anything. And, um, you know, besides that, I mean, they're, they're out there, uh, facing this, this virus out there on the, on the front lines pretty much. So it's, uh, you know, it's crazy that they're, um, um, you know, out there and, and doing their thing, but you know, it's, uh, it's all part of the job, but, 
um, you know, I just thought it was a you know simple way to uh, show that that you know, we think about them and that they uh, you know deserve deserve some recognition uh, for all that they they do for for us to keep us safe and and uh, yeah, just everything like that. Yeah, I'm really proud of you guys, the Oakland A's, and we had Liam on. He did the same thing, and you know what you guys are doing. You show you really care because in a time like this. It's just it's special when athletes reach out because so so many times it's the the fans applauding you. It's like a it's, mm-hmm. it's like a reversal role here. It's like you're now applauding people. It's like a total different deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you, like you said, it's uh, usually the other way around. But um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're we're just baseball players, and um, you know, I guess we put you know. Uh, you know, smiled on people's faces for uh, playing a game, but um, you know these these guys are uh, you know doing some real stuff out there and um, confronting something that is very very real and and uh, you know putting their um, you know lives out there on the on the line. So it's uh, you know it's crazy, a different perspective, and uh, you know I really just you know appreciate everything that they've uh, they've done so far. Have you been following baseball reference where they're simulating the season on a daily basis and how the A's are doing and how you were doing? Uh, no, I have not. Actually, never even heard about this yet. So definitely have to check that out. <laughs> so they're, they're doing every single game. And okay. you, by the way, you pitched yesterday. Oh, you, cool. Yeah, you went eight shutouts. You're going to love this. You went eight shutout innings against the Rays, and you struck out eight and got the victory. Your record right now, and I wonder if you would take this, you're four and one with a 1.82 ERA. <laughs> um, you know what? Uh, I think I'm, I am I will take that. That sounds like a, a pretty good year to start out the year so far. Oh, my gosh. Especially against those guys. Um, yeah, definitely need some uh, some redemption. You know what I mean? Oh, no doubt about it. I knew you'd love it. And the uh, the A's right now are twenty and fourteen. They lead the division by two. So e- e- even the simulation says that the A's are going to have a good team this year. <laughs> yeah, man. I, mean, I think we, uh, you know, we all believe it. And uh, you know, um, if this thing says says anything, and you know, have a season, then uh, you know, let's get to it and uh, make this thing for real. So right now, how are you keeping in shape? How are you keeping the arm in shape? How are you throwing? Who are you throwing with? Uh, right now, just um, you know, I uh, um, find like uh, find some places to work out. Usually, uh, just do some body weight workout uh, stuff. Uh, usually, like a park. Uh, me and a couple of the guys from uh, from the A's, we've been throwing uh, together. We just got together on our own and and. Um, um, you know, we pretty much just meet, meet up every day and then, uh, and throw and, um, you know, I usually come back home or work out at the, the park that we go to and, uh, just do some body weight workout stuff, do a little bit of running. And then, uh, usually like I'll do some, uh, extended stuff. I usually go on a walk and, um, you know, I usually get, uh, more of my cardio for that, but, um, yeah, really it's just, uh, just doing that stuff, throwing, um, you know, trying to get into some other stuff like, uh, um, I don't know, doing uh, some like yoga, doing some uh, some other stuff like that, and then uh, um, yeah, really just using this time to uh, try and do learn some more skills. Um, you know, learn Spanish, um, doing all that stuff, and uh, just trying to keep my mind occupied. And uh, you know, obviously thinking about season, thinking about pitching, and doing all that stuff, and uh, you know, just really taking this time to try and better myself in uh, every way that I can.
that's great to hear because that's one thing we've been asking everybody. Like, what are you doing a deep dive on? Whether it's a certain book series, it's Netflix. <laughs> you know, that's one thing we've been asking everybody. Like, like, what are you doing to pass the time? So you've learned Spanish. Uh, I wouldn't say I definitely haven't learned it. Uh, so the very, uh, very beginning stages, but um, you know, I've definitely uh, been committed to it. Uh, I'm just doing Duolingo right now. And um, you know, there's been, I've, I've had it for a while, um, but I just never actually stuck to it. So um, today will be day 21. Uh, I'm a hot streak and uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, I've, you know, some days I'm, you know, I'll do like hour two. some days, you know, just do like five minutes or whatever I can get in and, um, but I think the important thing is that I've, you know, stay consistent and at least for these, uh, these 21 days, um, just, uh, just done it every day. And, um, that's something I haven't actually done before. So in that aspect, I'm pretty, uh, pretty proud of myself. Um, I wouldn't say it's, uh, go, you know, it's going very, very slow right now, but, um, you know, as long as I'm keep doing it, then, uh, all I can ask for you know, I, I did two years of Spanish in high school. I was so bad at it. And growing and growing up in San Diego, you know, we went to Tijuana all the time. And mm -hmm. uh, I realized as long as I could say cerveza and el baño, I was good. <laughs> you know how to, uh, yeah, you'd be able to work your way around there. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so you know how hard it is to throw a no-hitter. And on this day in baseball history in 1991, Nolan Ryan would throw his last no-hitter. It would be hmm. his seventh no-hitter. And check this out. He was 44 years old. I mean, that man's just a, a walking, just, I don't even know the word, like hyperbole. Uh, what, like, he's just a, he's a legend, all this stuff that he's, he's done, like accomplished in his career. Like, it's, it's crazy that he's able to, uh, to last that long, you know? I think, he, what do you have, like 26 years? 27. Like in the show? 27. 27. I mean, I'm 20. Like, that's literally my whole life that he, uh, he pitched in the big leagues. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm looking at this like his last year was 1993. He was 46 years old. He had 807 starts. I mean, it's crazy when you look at his numbers. And then also on this day, Ricky Henderson would break Lou Brock's record for stolen bases. And we've been mm -hmm. going, we've been going these legends. I mean, the numbers that you see, you go, you look at Nolan Ryan strikeouts. No one's touching that. How about Ricky Henderson? He stole 1,406 yeah. bags in his career. Yeah. I definitely don't think that's going to be broken. Uh, at least anytime soon. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's just like a unobtainable, goal you know like that's that's unheard of that's unbelievable um yeah it's crazy that uh yeah that's i mean when you look at the like all the numbers and like all the crazy stats that are in baseball and then you know like the the home run records and the hit records and, and all that stuff like it yeah it's just mind-boggling um to think like all that stuff happened and then like that high of a level it's just it's wild to think about wow yeah he, he played 25 years he holds the record <laughs> Also for 2,295 runs scored, which is mind-boggling. You get to be around mm -hmm. him. How much have you ever been able to interact with Ricky Henderson, the Hall of Famer? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he shows up around uh, the clubhouse all the time. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't usually play cards that much, but I know he's always uh, 
like in the clubhouse playing cards, whether it be like casino. I think casino is one of his favorite games um, just because it's like a one V one kind of situation. And uh, you know, I think he likes whooping up on some of the, uh, the younger guys and um, <laughs> you know, just uh, um, just talking and, and stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, yeah, every day I, like I, I see him, it's like, Oh, he's just uh, another, another guy. Um, you know, it just shows up around the clubhouse and uh, you know, meshes in with the, uh, the guys. And then, then when you like realize it's like Ricky Henderson, you're like, oh my gosh, like this guy's a, this guy's the goat, you know, um, for what he's uh, been able to do for the game and you know what he's uh, what he's accomplished. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty fun having him around and uh, you know I get a you know talking back with the family members and stuff. It's uh, you know they're pretty jealous that I get a, like I'm able to uh, you know interact with uh, with Ricky Henderson. It's pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, that's one of the great things about baseball is we always honor our great players and bring them back. And uh, Ricky is, uh, if you're ever going to have a conversation, who's the best of all time, he's going to be in that conversation. Hey, thank you for stopping by. Uh, uh, What you're doing, it means a lot. It really does. These first responders need our love. And, of course, your girlfriend is one, and she's a hero. And what you're doing for these heroes is something very special. And we just all want to say thank you because during this time, you know, we need people to step up for the people who are protecting us and, and we're doing that. And you're one of them. Be well down in Arizona. Take care. And we'll talk to you later on. Sounds good. Thank you very much, guys. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live, he's a World Series champion and all-star AL Rolaids Relief Man of the Year. He's led the AL in saves. Former athletic keep folk is with us here on A's Cast Live. How are you doing down there in the Valley of the Sun? Oh, the Valley of Sun has treated me well. So it's, uh, you know, life is, life is as, as good as it could be during all this nonsense right now. Yeah. And hopefully we're going to get baseball going again. And like what, uh, what we're seeing so far in South Korea, never thought I'd be watching the KBO, uh, especially with nobody in the stands, but I got to tell you this brand of baseball in South Korea. I don't know if you've been able to watch it with all the bat flips and the umpires are dramatic with their, it's an entertaining game. <laughs> I have not seen it. Uh, I mean, I don't know how to watch it, but I think it would be kind of fun to watch. I've known a couple of guys that have played in Korea and, you know, they said it's a, uh, it's a different game over there. So yesterday it was either yesterday. I mean, it's groundhog day, whatever day it was, it was either yesterday yeah, or the day exactly. before they had game four on from the 2004 ALCS. And of course that's the, you pitch in the game and it's the famous stolen base by Dave Roberts. I mean, you guys are done. You're down. Oh, three. No one's ever come back from Oh three. And it's the curse of Bambino and it's losing to the Yankees again, as they stick the dagger in you. And all of a sudden Dave Roberts steals that base and you guys go into extra innings. You win that game. And the rest is history. What do you remember from that game, game four? Uh, it's kind of funny. I mean, the bag, you know, to go home for the winter was half packed. <laughs> you know, we painted ourselves into a pretty nasty picture. And, um, you know, it's it's even stressful to this day, re-watching it in the last few weeks, how close we were to really being done, you know, against the greatest reliever of all time, you know, to boot. So, uh, it was stressful, and it's it's still stressful to this day when I go back and rewatch it. Yeah, and to think, like, like when did you start to believe, like, okay, we win game four, then you win game five. Like, when did you start to believe, you know, we might be able to do this? You know, after game three, 
you know, you come in and your head's down, your tail's tucked and, you know, everybody's kind of sitting around the locker room and it's like, man, I mean, what just happened? You know, and we got stomped in that, that game three. Then uh, it kind of got to the point where two things were going to happen come the next day. You know, it's uh, you, you win and you play another day. You lose, you pack your stuff, you go home and you start your winner and you try and get over it. So it, it really, at that point, kind of took the pressure off of us. And uh, we came out game four like, you know what, what, what are we going to lose? It's been 86 years. What's the difference between 86 and 87? You know, so we just uh, started playing a lot looser. Uh, we were very fortunate in that series. We got all the breaks that we needed to get. And, uh, you know, we just went out there and literally played, you know, one game at a time. And the starting pitching you guys had, I mean, when you're throwing guys like Pedro, I think Kurt Schilling's finally going to get in the hall of fame. I think he should be in the hall of fame. He's, he's one, he's got over 200 wins and he's one of the greatest big game pitchers. He's one of the greatest postseason pitchers. But when you got starting pitching like that, 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 that's got to give you a lot of confidence. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we were down, you know, 3 was kind of hard to believe in the first place. But, yeah, we had some guys that have been through the, uh, you know, been through the ringer a few times. And so I think that was another thing that helped us out is we had a really veteran ball club. And so guys have been in the playoffs before and, and have lost in the playoffs. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that there's, you know, there's a lot to be learned from, from losing, especially when it comes to, you know, any type of playoffs in any sport, really that we didn't panic, you know, it's like all of a sudden it's, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, how are we going to do this? We knew how we could do it. We just had to get everybody to kind of relax, do their job and, you know, throwing, you know, Pedro and, and Schilling and Derek Lowe and throwing those guys at them. It's like, you know, we got what we need. We just got to do it. You know, 2003 was a great year for you at the A's. I mean, your numbers are just, it's incredible. You were nine and one. You led the league in saves with 43. You pitched in 72 games with a 2.08 ERA in the American League. Go back. It was the one year you were an all-star. You even got MVP votes, let alone Cy Young votes. What was 03 like for you in your career? Uh, 03 was fun. You know, I, I had a great time playing in Oakland. Uh, it was just an easy place to play. You know, I, you had the, the great group of fans. and. It was a fun place to play, and I, I enjoyed it. The, the ball club, we had a great ball club, and that's one of the big disappointments in my life is that we actually we weren't able to do something that year, a little, little greater. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I loved my time there, and, I you know, I wanted to come back, but, you know, things didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> we know how that works, but, uh, yeah. you, you know, when I, when I think you said the fans, you know, we don't have the biggest fan base. But it's amazing how fiercely loyal the A's fans are. I mean, they love the A's, and it's it's just that time that you got you guys had so much talent on those teams too. Yeah, and you know that's where um, you know how it ended in '03 was such a you know uh, such a gut punch. Uh, but yeah, I mean that team was. I mean, there were some great players on that team. I mean, you had. MVPs and batting champions and, and, and gold glovers and Cy Young guys. I mean, we had every piece of the puzzle filled in. We just got just that end was just still, like I said, it's still a little bitter taste in my mouth. Yeah, that was a, that, that, that was tough. Boston obviously was a good team, 
But I, you really felt like the A's, with, with the disappointment in the playoffs from years before, that this was going to be the time that they would break through. Absolutely. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, we put we had them exactly where we wanted. You know, it's like we were up 2-0, you know, and it's like I know personally I came out and after we had to fly to Boston, man, my back locked up on me from, from an injury that I'd been dealing with, and it was just like, God, just we just – kept stepping on our own toes and we just couldn't get out of our own way and we couldn't get it done. And that was, like I said, it was, it was disappointing. You know, there's only been so many closers who had just a great change up. I think of you, I think of Trevor Hoffman, you know, most guys it's either their out pitch is either the blazing fastball. It's a wicked slider or it's a split finger, but talk about the circle change, which is such a great pitch because you're throwing it, it looks like everything looks the exact same as the fastball. The only difference is, is the change in the grip. Yeah, you know, that was one of those things that I developed at a very young age in my, in my career is, uh, is the, the change-up is, you know, fastball, well-located fastball is, is the best pitch in baseball. And so then what plays best off of that is something that looks like a fastball, but it's not there. You know, hitters can see the up and down. They can see the in and out. But, you know, I had some pretty great hitters, you know, Frank Thomas and, uh, you know, Albert Bell and guys like those early in my career told me the hardest thing for them to see is the front to back, the deception of, you know, of the depth. And so that's where I just developed it. You know, it was fastball changeup was primarily my, you know, my go-to, but I had great control and, you know, I could pick apart the zone and keep hitters off balance. You know, you first came up as a starter. I mean, you started for the Giants. When was it when you said, ah, I'm better out of the bullpen? And then, of course, you become a closer. It really, in 2000 is when you have your first big year, 34 saves. When was that transition in your career from starter to being in the bullpen to being a closer? Uh, well, I didn't make the decision. I always wanted to be a starter. But after I got traded from uh, from the Giants to the White Sox in 97, the White Sox were in the middle of their rebuilding. That was the white flag trade, all that stuff. So they had brought up a bunch of their young starters to the big leagues. So they're like, right now we're just gonna, we don't have room for you in rotation. We're gonna put you in the bullpen. And uh, you know, so I went out there in uh, '97, '98, uh, went along, and and then all of a sudden it was like, you know, we had kind of talked about it a little bit, and then the management told me, hey, basically, you you screwed up. You pitch well out of the bullpen. We can't afford to put you back into the rotation. And it's one of those things. I, I just never left the bullpen again. Yeah, it's always like, I want to be a – I'm a start. Damn it, I'm a starter. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, uh, you're an all-star closer. But it's always that mentality, right, where you're like, I can, I, I can start. I should be getting that ball every fifth day. Yeah. You know, because that's one thing I love the minor leagues is I love going out there and grinding it out for, you know, six, seven, eight, nine innings. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, the, bit of the, bull, the benefit of the bullpen is being able to pitch more. You know, going out there and pitching three, four times a week was something that I took a lot of pride in. And being able to go multiple innings out of the bullpen was something I always specialized in also. So what are you doing now? Uh, now, well, now, now, or during regular life? <laughs> during regular, regular now. Yeah. So now I am a uh, bullpen advisor for the for the Red Sox and the player development for the minor leagues. So I 
I work with the young minor league pitchers, the bullpen guys, and just help them um, try to mold them into being, you know, ready for the big leagues when the when the call comes, and uh, you know, producing uh, hopefully producing great, you know, relief pitchers down the road for the future. You know, it, recently watching the Game 7 of the 2001 World Series, the famous World Series between the Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks, and it's Game 7, it, it's Roger Clemens, it's Curt Schilling, and both those guys, you know, they threw hard. But now looking back, they're throwing 95-96. How did we get to a point in baseball where all we got all these guys throwing 100, 101? Like, how did this happen? Yeah, that's that's a great question. But we've come across the the generation where these I call I call them kids, but they've grown up wanting to throw hard. They grew up in a, in an era of the radar gun. I never saw a radar gun until I got to my freshman year of college, and then I was dumbfounded by how slow I actually threw. But so these kids nowadays, they've grown up with with personal pitching coaches and radar guns and. Uh, you know, the technology that we put on TV that, you know, that fans watch a game is a lot greater. So, you know, it, it, it's sexy. You know, home runs and, you know, and 100 mile an hour fastballs are sexy. So that's what everybody wants. And when you're, when you're, when you're working with these kids, are you just amazed at the, the velocity that you're seeing, like down at spring training? Across the board, it really is. And it takes a little while to get used to. You know, you see, you see a lot of guys who have to work hard to throw hard and then you get that uh every once in a while you come across that guy it's like he's throwing it looks like he's going about 50 percent and all of a sudden you just you hear the ball snap out of his hands and you see the carry to the glove you're like oh wow that's hard you know and then we start getting into games it's like oh yeah this guy popped out at 102 today he was uh 98 to a to 100 you know the whole day and it's like wow you know they're the athletes they're they train differently now. They're they're just incredible athletes across the board, and I think that's how you know they get to throw harder. And and, and we we can end on this. The craziness is these young hitters are now used to it, and they can hit it. Oh, they'll turn three digits around like it's nobody's business. So that's one thing. You know, it, it goes back to where yes, you can throw harder, you can try and make breaking balls nastier, but it still comes down to my opinion. You still have to make these pitches in the proper locations and be able to set hitters up because if they're looking for a fastball and you're throwing 105, they're going to hit it. So you have to do something to make them uncomfortable and, and you know, keep them off balance still. Keith, it's great to catch up with you again and having you on the program. We appreciate it. Be well and be safe down there in the Valley of the Sun. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you once again once we get baseball going. Hey, that sounds like a plan. How are many times? Wednesday is known as Hump Day for everyone during the work week. But on A's Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California, and the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. Ray, how you doing? Tony, I'm doing great, my friend. How are you today? And how's Cody today? Commander. We, we, we are all doing well. And I was just, uh, as we were in that commercial break, I was checking some of these uh, notable things that have happened in baseball on May 6th. And the first one is 1915. Boston Red Sox pitcher 
Babe Ruth hits his first career home run against the New York Yankees on this date <laughs> in baseball history. Well, that is tremendous knowledge. What, what an athlete. And, and I remember interviewing the late Bob Feller. And, of course, uh, you know him as uh, your grandfather. Uh, you pointed out that uh, your grandfather hit a couple of home runs off of him in the World Series. But I remember when Bob Feller, I asked him, I said, with all the great players you played against and with, Give me the guy that you think. And he said, you know, it's, uh, he said Joe DiMaggio was pretty good. Joe DiMaggio had tremendous numbers against him throughout his career. But the one guy that he mentioned he thought was the best hitter was Babe Ruth. And you think what Babe Ruth did as a pitcher, and then, of course, everybody knows him as the Sultan of SWAT, you know, hitting all the home runs, the 60 home runs before Roger Maris broke it and then McGuire and Bonds. But, you know, a tremendous pitcher, a tremendous athlete. And, and if you look at some of the movies, they, they, they depict him as this overweight, hot dog eating, out all night type of a player. But, man, he could produce. You know, he supposedly used a 52-ounce bat, Tony, 52 ounces. That's 20 ounces more than players. I mean, I used a 32-33 most of my career. So you're thinking 20 ounces heavier, and you could just I could just see him taking that, that sway back a little bit and putting the big bat and his body into everything. No wonder he had as many home runs as he did. But what a tremendous athlete, and that is tremendous knowledge because, you know, everybody knows uh, why he was sold to the Yankees and the rest is history, the curse of the Bambino for many, many years with the Red Sox. But uh, they finally won in 04. But I think Babe Ruth, uh, if you look at the great history of this great game, Babe Ruth will go down probably as one of the all-time greatest. And the late Frank Crossetti, I interviewed him as well, um, he lived in Stockton. He'd come down when the Yankees were in town. And he said he, he, he coached third when Babe Ruth was playing. And he said that there should be all kinds of awards given to the great Babe Ruth because he brought the game back when it was in a tough time and uh, with all the home runs that he hit, but just a tremendous athlete. And you think about uh, – he, he's a trivia question, I think, isn't he, Tony, to uh, – hit a home run and, and win a game in a World Series or something like that because um, as far as pitching a, a game because he was such a great athlete to be able to do both the pitching and the hitting, similar to what Shohei Otani does in today's world. Yeah, I mean, there was back-to-back -back years with the Red Sox. He won like 23 and 24 games. And last time I was at the Baseball Hall of Fame, he's the only, play, he's the only player with his own wing. And <laughs> that tells you a lot about Babe Ruth. I I think he deserves it, Tony, because uh, just, just everything that he did, and especially during the time of the dead ball era where nobody hit home runs, and all of a sudden this guy comes in, he's hitting the balls that, that nobody ever dreamed could be hit. And, and, you know, I would encourage fans, if you know, especially during these tough times, that if they get a chance to watch the movies, the Babe Ruth story, I mean, they're different versions, but, um, you know, he, he was quite an athlete, and, and you know, did a lot of things probably that some people wouldn't like, but the fact that what he could do on the field and what he did with kids, I think was tremendous. And of course, when Lou Gehrig came along and they were teammates and uh, we know that story of how great Lou Gehrig was in the ALS and having to end his uh, career after 2,130 consecutive games that only Cal Ripken Jr. broke. But, you know, Tony, there are records that would never be broken. Babe Ruth's record for most home runs in a single season and career was broken, but I don't think Cal Ripken Jr.'s record will ever be broken, not even close to being broken. So unless you come back and play, maybe you, maybe you can do it. Uh, I'm, I'm washed up, Foss. You should see my my, – my, my, you, you can't see my hair. My hair is so out of control, but so is my gut. At some point, I'm going to have to start working out. All right, 1953, 
Browns pitcher. That's that's not Cleveland Browns. That's St. Louis Browns. Right. right. Bobo Holloman throws a five walk, three strikeout, no hitter against the Philadelphia Athletics. And he's the last pitcher to ever record a no hitter in his first major league start. And then how about this one? Your old teammate, 1982 on this date. See, uh, Seattle Mariners pitcher Gaylord Perry records yep. his 300th career win. Wow. And I was behind the plate when he won 24 of them in 1972. So what a, what a story. Gaylord, what a great pitcher. But, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, when you mentioned the 53 St. Louis Browns, were they not the only team or only city that had two teams playing at that time? The, the Cardinals and the Browns, I think. It seemed like I remember because whenever they were playing at Sportsman's Park, um, it, I think there was something along those lines. But, you know, that, that, you know, Tony, what you're just doing today, just in, in mentioning those, that tells you the great history of this game. You're going back over 100 years with Babe Ruth in 1915, and you go back to 53 and then 82. Just, just look at the decades and the years that you're talking about that people remember on special dates that these things happen. So I, I, I think it's tremendous that the, the game is, has so much history. And I think the Oakland A's fans, and I have to always say, they're part of that because as long as the A's have been in Oakland, there's been a lot of history there as well. And, and as time goes, when we're long gone, people will be looking back at the era of the 70s and late 80s and the early 2000s when the A's had a lot of success. And, and that's now. And who knows how much more there's going to be uh, you know, once baseball resumes. But, you know, it's, it's a tremendous sport, and I don't think there's any other sport that can compare to it. And uh, right now, fans throughout the country and perhaps even the world uh, are getting a chance to see some of the great things that happened in the past. And I'm sure you're going to talk about the KBO, aren't you? Oh, of course. But there's one more guy. <laughs> one more guy okay. here uh, turns 89 today, the great Willie Mays, who had a yes. 156.2 war. And I always say I don't know who the greatest player is, uh, but Babe Ruth's in the conversation, Willie Mays, Barry Bonds, Hank Aaron, Ted Williams, Ricky Henderson. What was it like for you as a young catcher, whether it's the All-Star game, it's spring training, when you're playing against guys like a Willie Mays, you played in a World Series against somebody who was 42 right. at the time. But when, when you first came up and whether – Whatever the great play, what was it like when you're catching in one of these great, and you know they're great, you know they're future Hall of Famers, and they come to the plate, what was going through your mind? My baseball cards had come to life because I was, I was a collector. I mean, I learned my lesson uh, with Gene Freeze. I think I may have said it when he played for the Hawaiian Islanders, and he came up to hit and they announced his name. And I said, you're Gene Freeze, man, I've got your baseball cards. And he looked at me like, shut up, punk kid, you know, the whole thing. But but in 1970, in the All-Star game, the, the fact that the late Roberto Clemente was playing and, and Willie McCovey and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron, uh, Tom Seaver, I mean, it's a nationally Joe Torre, and then in the American League with Luis Aparicio and Brooks and Franks Robinson. I mean, just so many great players. But, you know, I knew that they were great. And, and kind of the one thing I remembered was that when I caught for the A's, these same players who I – was behind the plate against with the A's starting staff versus when I was with Cleveland, it was totally different. It's called reputation. So some of these great players, and I remember Frank Robinson, he would stand right on top of the plate and he'd hold his bat perpendicular to the, to, uh, to the ground, straight up. And he had, I think it was a B-267. 
big head, uh, top of the uh, big headed uh, uh, end of the bat, probably about 34, 35 ounces. He could cover the inside standing on top of the plate, but he could also cover about six to eight inches off the plate. And I'll never forget whenever I was with Oakland and Frank Robinson came up and there were pitches called a strike. And I went back to Cleveland, same pitches. And all of a sudden, the umpire said, you're not in Oakland anymore. So there's your reputation. But some of these players, uh, Tony, I mean, I was thrilled. And again, to have been a young kid collecting baseball cards. Of course, you know, my boyhood idol was the late Stan Musial. Stan the man, you know, just a tremendous player playing for the Cardinals. Uh, you know, just I, I just any chance I had to go to St. Louis to watch him play, I would do that as a kid. And then all of a sudden, take all these baseball cards, sign professionally, get to the big leagues, and see some of these guys that I collected their cards come to real life in front of me. I mean, it was just an unbelievable thrill for me. And I still think about it today. You know, and every time, you know, you mentioned Gaylord Perry pitching and winning his 300th game with the Mariners, you know, just uh, just a tremendous pitcher and, and having the thrill to catch him and, and catch his hunter and Vita Blue and, you know, Joe, Kenny Holtzman and, and, and Blue Moon Odom, Raleigh Fingers, these guys that fans got a chance to see in the World Series championships in the early 70s. So, you know, it's, it's been a thrill for me, and I don't take anything for granted that I played 11 years in the big leagues. I was fortunate to be able to play those years in the big leagues and also be behind the plate, either catching some of the great superstars or being there calling some games where they hit. I, I think I said this too, the, the great Harmon Killebrew, that, that swing where he kind of went back on his back leg and just lifted. I mean, I called some of the longest shots in the world with him at the plate in the early 70s whenever he played out the old Met. And I used to walk up and run upstairs and, and see some of the painted seats in left field at the old Metropolitan uh, Stadium out by, which is now the uh, Mall of America, and see some of the seats that were painted were easy shots that I called. It's amazing. But, I mean, you, you could not get a fastball inside Armand Killebrew because he would turn on it so quickly, and next thing you know, it's in the upper deck. So, it's, uh, it, you know, it's just, you know, it's a great game, Tony. It's, it's, a, it's a game that so many great players today, they're different uh, aspects of the game and the way they condition year-round, basically. Whereas in the past, uh, you, you were one team, no movement. Uh, you were paid what the owners wanted to pay you, but you loved the game, you loved the competition, and you loved to play in October because that means you're one of the better teams in baseball. I'm looking at the guys in this World Series. All of them are big names, but here's the amount of Hall of Famers. You got Carly Ostrimski, Frank Robinson, Harmon Killebrew, Jim Palmer, Rod Carew, Brooks Robinson, Catfish Hunter. That's just on the American League side. Yeah. On the National League side, you got Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Tony Perez, Johnny Bench, Tom Seaver, Willie McCovey, Joe Morgan, uh, Roberto Clemente, Rose, not in, but we know the all-time hits leader, Bob Gibson, Gaylord Perry, and then wait for it, Hoyt Wilhelm's on the team. <laughs> I know. And, and you know, and that, that's why I said, too, that I was like a kid in a candy store running up and down the dugout. And I could still see Riverfront Stadium and, and the way the guys they had, you know, like they all stadiums have, they have the bench. And then guys would sit up on top of the uh, the bench on kind of, you know, if you sat down, you know what I'm talking about. But, you know, guys were, you know, and, and all these these Hall of future Hall of Famers you know, multiple all-star games, and they were just saying, oh, it's another game. And I'm running up and down there saying, oh, there's a rookie, you know, the first game. And, it, you know, but it was a thrill, Tony. I mean, to, to think that I got a chance to catch 
Catfish Hunter, um, the late Mel Stoudemire get a, get a hit off Gaylord Terry, uh, have Roberto Clemente come up to the plate and Willie Mays, all these guys. I mean, it, it was just such a thrill to know that I was in the, in the company of some great, great superstars that went on to be Hall of Famers. And, and I'm so happy for Willie Mays and, and so happy to see him every time we get a chance, either in San Francisco or down in Scottsdale in spring training, you know, just to see him and know that you talk about Mr. Baseball and the respect that he has around the game. I think it's tremendous in what the Giants do and bringing him in and just sit there and talk baseball. And, I, you know, you can't, you can't beat it. And I think Willie Mays will go down. I, I agree with you. And, you know, Bob Feller said Babe Ruth. He didn't see uh, perhaps – well, he saw Willie Mays but the National League. But, uh, but I, I think Willie will go down as probably the all-time greatest just because of what he could do defensively and the 660 home runs offensively. And I, this book that's coming out with uh, John Shea, I think it's going to be an interesting read for everybody to be able to pick that up and uh, read about the greatness of Willie Mays. Ray Fossey was one for two with an RBI and a run scored in the game, so you definitely contributed. Let's talk a little KBO. You ever, you ever get a chance to have a bat flip in your career like these guys do in the <laughs> Green Baseball League? Oh, Tony. You know, I played in an era where, as you know, if I hit a home run, the guy in the on-deck circle got drilled, and then I got drilled when I came back up. So it was run the bases, no high fives, no bat flips, lay the bat down, don't show up anybody, put your head down, and just run. And, and you know, that's what I appreciate about Mark McGuire with the 363 home runs he hit as a member of the Athletics, seeing every one of them. But he never showed up anybody. He hit some of the longest shots. But he put the bat down, put his head down, and run around the bases to the point that when he hit, what, number 70 or 71, he may have missed first base. Dave McKay, when he was in St. Louis, called him back to retouch, make sure he touched first base because it wouldn't have counted. But, uh, you know, it, it's just – I don't know. It, it's just uh, the bat flips, while it's great, it's part of the game, and the commissioner, Rob Manfred, wants the guys to be more outgoing. But, you know, you have to be as a pitcher. And, and I understand – in the KBO, they look at that as a, a right, uh, right of passage, that if you hit a home run or if you don't hit a home run, hit a foul ball, as, as we saw in some of the uh, – I watched the first game uh, parts of it, which is nice to be on the West Coast and not have to worry about uh, a 1 o'clock start time, 1 o'clock Eastern time. But uh, to, to see the bat flips, I mean, there's some major bat flips there. And they talked about Jose Bautista doing it in Toronto against the Rangers. And that is shown – and, you know, he's showing up people – but they do that all the time in, uh, in, in Korea to the point that guy hit, I saw a guy hit a foul ball, and he gave him the most unbelievable bat flip I've ever seen. It was a foul ball. <laughs> so, so, I love it, I, man. I, 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 I got to tell you, Foss, and we just talked to Eno Saris earlier today, and Eno talked to our old friend Dan Straley, and, like, they encourage him to, like, fist bump and get fired up for a strikeout because they know it's entertainment. And I understand that game has been but i like watching this it's fun i think that they 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 get they got swagger they sure. play the game different i i i i i kind of hope major league baseball players watch this and go why don't we play like this because they look like they're yeah. having a good time well and and Tony, i agree with you but it has to be an agreement between the pitchers and the hitters now the thing that disappoints me in today's world of baseball a pitcher can get upset if a guy hits a home run and he knows it and he watches it and all that, you can see the pitcher get angry and look at it. Well, you know, the pitcher cannot himself then 
run off the mound, pumping his fist, jumping up and down with joy when he strikes out somebody. So it has to be if you're going to if you're going to react that way as a pitcher, you better be able to take it when a guy hits one off of you. And I've seen both sides. And uh, I know again when I played, it's a different story. But now I think it's part of entertainment. I think it's great. The home runs are part of the game. You're seeing more and more home runs hit. But I, I agree with you that, uh, and, you know, again, what Dennis Eckersley did, fist pumping when the game was over, that was an, an adrenaline release that he was so concerned that he would fail that it was like, oh, I did it. You know, and it wasn't showing anybody up. Other players thought they were being shown up by him whenever, when he did that. But the bottom line, it was more of himself being satisfied and happy that he got the job done versus blowing it and uh, maybe giving up a walk-off that he coined perfectly. But, no, I agree with you. The, the, well, first of all, I'm happy to see live baseball uh, in Korea. And, and, you know, no fans in the stands, which is understandable. But at least it's live baseball. How about the umpire? Uh, they, they showed him making a uh, strikeout call. Instead, it's like he was starting a lawnmower. You know, uh, even the umpires are getting into it. You know, But, you know, I, I saw with him, you talk about exposed. And I think umpires should hide behind a catcher as much as they can in case there's a foul ball or it gets a cross-up because in this particular case, the umpire was standing there just like he was the catcher, exposed, and, again, not knowing what ball was coming. But it is entertaining, and, uh, but, but I, I still think that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of egos uh, in baseball in this country. And, and I think whenever players play and they show uh, their, their enthusiasm, very demonstrative, demonstrative when they hit a home run or, or pump their fist, you know, just as long as it's, it's acceptable by both sides. You can't have somebody. You remember when Ramon Laureano, um, I think the kid's playing in, Tokyo, in uh, Korea yes, right man. now. He, he, Samson. You know who I'm talking Who's yeah. that? Samson from the Rangers. Samson. Yeah, yeah. when, he, when he, he, he kicked Ramon's bat in, tex in Texas, and he had a very good game against the A's, and then Ramon hit a home run off of him and <laughs> looked at his bat. Point is, here's my bat. Now what are you going to do at, at the Coliseum? Well, you know, players remember that stuff. So in the case of Samson, he watched Ramon run around the bases, almost waiting and hoping that he would do something so it'd have a reason to drill him or maybe start a fight. But, you know, again, you give up a home run. That means you made a bad pitch. That's all it is, Tony. If a home run is hit, it's a bad pitch that the pitcher's thrown. It's a mistake because home runs are hit on mistakes. And guys will hit 40, 50, 60, whatever – but you look at the pitches they're hitting, they are mistakes. So, in essence, it's something that is done by the pitcher. There was a, a gentleman, and I hate to really say that he passed away, Wayne Hathaway, nicknamed Big Fella for the Minnesota Twins. And I remember something that he said, which really kind of holds true. He said when the kid, the kid would come off the mound after giving up a home run, that, that big fellow would say, don't worry about it, kid. It's the scout who signed you should be upset. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't on the player. It was on the scout, you know. But, but you know, it, it, again, um, one time I had uh, – I can't remember who the video coordinator was for the A's. I don't know if it's Adam Roden who does a tremendous job. I think it was when he first started. I said, Adam, can you show me just home runs that are hit by the opposing – or, oh, really, A's, opposing hitters, doesn't matter. Just – kind of a, a rapid fire home runs. Tony, every one of the pitches that were hit were balls down the middle, mistakes thrown by the pitcher, and reaction by the hitter to be a home run. So, yes, I mean, you know, all this goes back to, you know, the, the hitters and the pitchers, everybody working together. I think it's great 
you know, that, that when baseball does come back, that maybe they have a little bit of that enthusiasm. So fans, whether they're watching on TV or fortunately or hopefully able to see them in the stands, can, uh, can watch them do their things and not be upset and, and having fights caused because somebody does flip a bat or somebody pumps a fist when you strike that somebody. So the Baseball Hall of Fame puts out articles, and they recently put out an article about, about what happened to the left-handed throwing catcher. There used to be lefties <laughs> who played catcher, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, guys don't really steal anymore. Why, why can't a left-hander be a catcher? Why do you think? I'll ask you. Why do you think there? Mike Squires, Spanky, they call him. He played uh, a good friend of Tony Russo's. Played for the White Sox, and I think he might have been the last catcher to actually get behind the plate as a left-handed catcher. Now, I would, I would say because there's more right-handed hitters. I knew you were going to say that because everybody says that. It, to, to me, the reason is this, Tony. As a catcher. You need to throw the ball with four seams. As I've said many times, the only player on the field who wants movement on the baseball when he throws it is the pitcher, a sinker, two-seamer, whatever. But as an infielder, outfielder, catcher especially, you want to grab the baseball and you take the baseball and you, you, you put your index and middle finger over the four seams or the seams. And if you rotate the ball, you'll see nothing but seams. You'll see four seams. So ideally, and you, you hear the catchers, they talk about throwing from behind the ear. But the optimum throw to second base is one that is thrown straight and with a four seam. Now, if you think of a left-handed pitcher, left-handed outfielder, even a left-handed first baseman, their angle in which they throw the baseball prohibits them from throwing the ball straight like a four-seamer. Now, I'm sure there are going to be people saying, well, that's not true. But I know that when Reggie Jackson or any left-handed thrower threw from the outfield, if I lined up the infielder, say first baseman with a right fielder, if I lined him up straight, then the ball would end up over near the first base dugout because of the movement of the baseball. So picture a left-handed catcher throwing to second base. And if he has movement, that ball is going to move to the shortstop side of second, which means if the second baseman or shortstop is straddling the bag, he has to reach back to his right, catch the ball, go back to his left to make the tag. But if it's a four-seam straight throw from the catcher to second base, the, the infielder can straddle the bag. And you've seen many times where the infielder, the throw is so perfect, perfectly thrown, and that the play is so close that all the infielder has to do is catch the ball and drop his glove. But to me, a left-handed guy throwing the ball cannot do that. And that's why I always thought, because – you know, there's left-handers, right-handers, it really doesn't matter. Your point about no stolen bases, that's fine. But I just think it's the inability of lefties, for some reason with their arm angle, to be able to throw the ball straight. And to me, that's the reason that um, they're not left-handed catchers. It has nothing to do with the hitters at the plate. We are that's, just, my, that's my philosophy. We're discriminating against lefties. We don't allow them to play catcher. We don't allow them to play third, short, or second. I want to see a left-handed shortstop. I just want to see it, a left-handed shortstop. Well, how are you going to turn it up and play? He'll figure it out. We figure everything out. <laughs> Listen, I think, I think hey, if actually, you're left-handed. You know what's interesting about that, Foss, is essentially – Turning a double play for for a left-handed shortstop would be the equivalent of a right-hander doing it at second base. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. But with the protection of those middle infielders now, it really doesn't matter. But yeah. I, I just think 
I just think as kids come up and, and I would encourage if you know, left-handed pitchers, I always say there's, there's a whole bunch of left-handed pitchers. They're not. I mean, you look at teams where, I mean, the A's are fortunate because they, you know, once baseball resumes, they're going to have Manaya, Puck, and Lazardo. Uh, actually, Manaya. No, yeah, you Manaya, Puck, and Lazardo with uh, Montas and fires the two righties. So to have three lefties in a rotation, I mean, that's unbelievable. Just like with the big three in Hudson, Mulder, and Zito. I mean, Zito and Mulder, if all three of those guys pitched and you put Hudson in between those two or back-to-back lefties, you know, that's, that's tough. But, but I think left-handed hitters have the most beautiful swing. And again, nothing against righty, but left-handers seem to have that picturesque swing that enables them to create power. They can pull the ball down the lines. They can, you know, look at Matt Olson. Look at the power that he has, the swing that he has hitting from the left side. You know, and again, nothing against righties, but I think if, if I had a son, I would encourage him to be a left-hand hitter. Switch hitter, probably optimum, but, it, but as far as uh, if, if one or the other, I would take as a left-hander. And, and again, for those people who are listening, this has nothing to do with favoring one side or the other or one reason. It's, it's throwing to second base is just my philosophy because I've seen outfielders not be able to throw the ball straight, left-handed throwing outfielders not be able to throw it straight. So that's the reason I think that the catcher is throwing to second base. And, you know, from the middle infielders, and I think, Tony, that when you come up as a kid and you're playing, you're just taught you're going to be, if you're left-handed, you're going to be a first baseman, you're going to be an outfielder, you're going to be a pitcher. I just think that's the way kids are brought up, and, and um, that, that's been around for as long as baseball has been around uh, to be able to do that because there's so few. If, you know, I, I can't even remember of a shortstop, third baseman, or second baseman being left-handed. Uh, unless it's a uh, – can you? Think of, think, of, think of this guy. Great feet, terrific athlete, had great range, and could pick it as good as anybody. Keith Hernandez could have played shortstop. Yeah, I mean, you're right. But look how great he was at first base. No, and, yeah. you know, you, I mean, you think about the bad throws and how much Matt Olson, with his ability – to catch the ball, scoop the ball, his size, how much better he has made everybody on that infield to the point that the left side of the infield, Marcus Simeon and, and both he and Matt Chapman have said, look at this guy at first base. He catches everything. So, yeah, I can agree with you about Keith Hernandez, and there have been some great first basemen, but sometimes a first – and see, the misconception to me, Tony, is that first base can be played by anybody. That's not true. I mean, you have to be able to be uh, mobile enough to be able to handle – ground balls, and if you're holding a runner, all the things that happen, and even throwing. Let's say you get a ground ball and you have to throw the ball to the plate. You have to be able to throw. Catch a ball, throw to second, and make a 3-6-1 or 3-6-3 double play throw, you know, to be able to do that. So it takes some, some good – it takes a good athlete to play first base, and I, I think a for good first baseman fielding-wise with good footwork, like Hernandez, like Matt Oton, can help the other infielders. So why take him away from a position that he excels in? Let's end on this. The, the dream at bat for me would to put Ray Fossey in the KBO with a sombrero on, hitting a home <laughs> run with the big bat flip. <laughs> and not my sombrero off on Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, do you remember the game the A's had against the Rangers on Cinco de Mayo? With uh, they lost seventeen to sixteen. Remember that game? It was brought up, and it was it was brutal. And it was uh, – I, 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 Pudge Rodriguez was playing. The late Johnny Oates was managing. And I remember the scenario that the catcher in the bullpen 
couldn't get to the to the dugout quickly enough because Johnny, I mean, I think the A's had a six seven run lead. I don't know. Have to ask Dave Feldman. He probably knows. I can look back at my scorebook. But it was a game that the A's were going to win easily. But that one move, the way the catcher could not get to the dugout quickly enough, kept Pudge Rodriguez in the game. He hit something, home run or something. All of a sudden, the Rangers came back and won the game 17-16 to 16 on Cinco de Mayo. And that's a game that I'll never forget in Texas. And that one move, probably because, you know, I, I remember playing with the A's in 73 when Dick Williams said, okay, one more bat for all you guys and take the rest of the day off. We came back, won the game, and that turned us around. And, you know, that's a game that you can look at for the Rangers, even though it didn't help them win uh, in the division or go to the playoffs. But it was a game that I'm sure inspired them to say that the game is never over. You never know in baseball. It's 27 out or more, depending on extra innings. But it's, it's not a time sport. And that's why sometimes when you see guys taken out, you wonder, what could they have done? If that, you know, let's say that bat of a, of a player who's taken out comes up with a bases loaded and nothing against the guy took over for him, but he's not as good as the guy who was taken out. But that game, I'll never forget on Cinco de Mayo. But I still cannot remember where that picture came from, Tony. <laughs> the sombrero. I still, don't, I still don't know, but it always surfaces. And I'm sure around, well, yesterday was May the 5th, so who knows? Uh, I didn't see it, but I'm sure it's around someplace. But, yeah, that um, – I, I don't I, – know. I, I, I just could not think about flipping a bat. First of all, I was happy when I hit a ball uh, hard, as, as I was fortunate to do against Don Sutton uh, in the World Series against the Dodgers. But, you know, you, you, you know if you're, you're hitting 700, it's different, 700 home runs. But if you're hitting 50 or 60, you better not show up anybody because you're going to get drilled. And I played, like I said at the time, when I got drilled if, if I hit a home run. And I tried – I did anything to show up a pitcher. I was drilled the next time I came up. Hmm. Boss, you're the best. Be well. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, no, you guys are the best. Commander Cody is tremendous. You are the best. And I can only say this, how great it is for the fans to hear you and the interviews you're doing. I'm not including me, but just the fact that you're working and people can think about baseball, hear about baseball. You're doing a great job. Cody's doing a great job getting your guests and you're interviewing them. You're doing a great job. So continue success, my friend. Take care, Foss. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. Well, as everybody knows here on A's Cast Live, we've been going over every single division and every single team as we continue in the American League East. Now we're talking about the New York Yankees, who were 103-59, and an unbelievable year. And joining us now, he's a World Series champion, a three-time All-Star. He's in the Baltimore Orioles Hall of Fame. He's a Roberto Clemente Award winner. The great Ken Singleton joins us here on A's Cast Live, longtime Yankee broadcaster. Ken, thank you so much for the time. It is my pleasure. It's good to talk some baseball in this uh, at this time. Yeah, no doubt. And hopefully what we're going to see in South Korea and Japan and then hopefully NASCAR and the PGA Tour as th these leagues uh, start to get going, hopefully that'll help us in Major League Baseball get going. Yeah, um, you know, it's been a while. I'm sure people are getting a little impatient, but uh, I, I think before we we do get started in Major League Baseball again, we have to make sure that uh, everything is on the up and up. Everybody will be safe. Eventually, maybe the fans will be able to come back. Uh, there's just a lot of things that have to be taken care of before we're able to, to get going here. And I'd, I'd like to see them do it uh, correctly rather than start and then have to stop and uh, shut everything down again. You know, we were down in San Diego for the winter meetings. And when we were doing our show, we were like 
literally right next to the Yes Network and their uh-huh. stage. And when Garrett Cole signed with the Yankees, there was like an explosion. <laughs> it was it was unbelievable. <laughs> what was it like in the Yankees world when they landed Garrett Cole? Yeah, well, the fans you can expect were excited to, you know, after the Yankees signed the arguably the best pitcher in the game. Uh, certainly had great stats last year. Uh, finished second in the uh, Cy Young to his own teammate, uh, Justin Verlander. And uh, to add him to the top of the Yankee rotation, which was uh, pretty good to begin with, uh, now you give him that uh, ace starter. Uh, it kind of reminded me of back in the day when the Yankees uh, uh, signed Catfish Hunter. Uh, when he uh, left the A's with the dispute with Charlie Finley, the owner of the A's, and the Yankees were able to sign him as a free agent. It kind of reminded me of that and sort of the uh, hubbub that was in New York when Catfish signed back in the 70s. And now uh, with Garrett Cole to go along with Tanaka, Half Paxton, and Montgomery, that's a pretty good, uh, that's a formidable rotation that the Yankees have there. You know, it's it's so interesting watching MLB Network and they're doing all these classic games. And obviously, you know, I saw a game from you know, a World Series game one, 1998 Yankees against the Padres. They just showed the the classic game seven of 2001 Yankees against the D-backs. And then I saw this mm-hmm. stat and it's it just it, it really is crazy because. A lot of the years you played the Yankees, they weren't great. I mean, Don Mattingly only went to the playoffs one time in his career. But since 1993, the Yankees have had 27 consecutive winning seasons. This is a run yeah. that's unprecedented. Well, uh, there's only been one longer, and that was with the Yankees. I think it was back in the 30s. But uh, I've been with the, the Yes Network and the Yankees now for 24 years. <laughs> been a winning season every single year. Uh, so I've got no complaints as far as bringing good news to the fans in the New York area and around the country who are Yankee fans. Uh, it just seems that uh, they're a strong organization. Certainly they have the wherewithal to get things done. They, they do have the money, and uh, they, they seem to make good decisions. Uh, Brian Cashman has been their longtime general manager, and he certainly has been one of the best in the game. And uh, the organization itself uh, – uh, they are strong into sabermetrics and all that sort of thing. So they, they know what they're doing uh, analytically and uh, with the scouting department as well. They seem to know which players uh, can do what and uh, who can help them at, at certain times. Now, of course, when you have a chance to sign somebody like Garrett Cole, uh, that was just the money having to work with all uh, the matter of having the work with all to do it. And the Yankees made him uh, the strongest offer. Ken, you've never had to suffer like some of us have had to suffer when the ball club's like 20 <laughs> games out and that's no, no chance and you're just making stuff up to try and be entertaining. You have no idea what that's like. Well, uh, not with the Yankees, but uh, you have to remember before I came to the Yankees, I, I did Montreal games for 12 years. And there, there were some very lean times with the Expos uh, before I got to the Yankees. And uh, of course they had some, they had some pretty good years, but uh Mostly they were, uh, you know, a 500 or sub 500 team. So I did pay my dues as far as uh, broadcasting is concerned. Now I, I grew up in the New York area, so getting back to the Yankees, I, I've seen the Yankees for uh, a long, long time. I grew up on Yankee baseball, so to get a chance to go back to my my hometown, although I don't live in New York, uh, it was when I go there, I don't get lost. So I, I 
I was, it's been really enjoyable to say the least. I've enjoyed every single minute of uh, broadcasting Yankee baseball. You know, the one thing about not playing and not starting the season on time, the Yankees were pretty banged up in spring training, which, you yeah. know, surprising, you know, judge we're now we're hearing about a collapse long uh, Stanton, uh, you know, quite a few guys. So, I got to think once we get this thing started again, the Yankees should be close to healthy, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, You know, it's kind of amazing. They were able to win 103 games last year when I think they had about 34 players uh, go on the injured list from one time or another, including Judge, including Stanton, who only hit three home runs all last year, played 18 games. Uh, These are some of the power hitters, that uh, the best power hitters in the game. And the Yankees still hit 306 home runs last year. Uh, I think that um, Judge, he's on his way. I, I heard a um, uh, an interview with Aaron Boone, the Yankee manager, just uh, the other day. And he mentioned that Stanton's about ready to go. He's ready to play when they come back now. This, In, in a way, this shutdown has kind of helped the Yankees. Uh, James Paxson, the starting pitcher, had back surgery. He should be ready pretty soon, too, if they get started in June or, or, or early July. Uh, Judge, he's still not quite healed. He, he has to go an under, undergo another CAT scan on his rib, and uh, but he's getting closer. And Aaron Hicks, who had uh, Tommy John surgery, the outfielder had Tommy John surgery last October, uh, he's starting to hit from both sides of the plate and starting to throw. So he should be ready sometime in July as well. So this shutdown for the Yankees, in a way, may have helped them uh, get healthier as a team and get some of their star players back. Of course, they they lost Luis Severino for the year with Tommy John surgery, uh, and he will be missed. Uh, he's one of the best pitchers in the league. But uh, the Yankees should be able to fill his spot with Jordan Montgomery, who's back from uh, Tommy John surgery. You know, you mentioned Aaron Boone. The last time I talked to Aaron Boone, he was a broadcaster on ESPN, mm-hmm. and, and he knew he was a cool cat then. Uh, you've watched him grow as a manager and the job he did last year, winning 103 games, as you said, all the different guys that were hurt. What have you seen in Aaron Boone Boone and how he's grown as a manager? He doesn't panic. Um, Despite all the injuries last year, his mantra was uh, the next man up. We have people who can do the job. And he never let the team... Uh, get down on themselves, despite the fact that uh, Judge missed a third of the season and Stanton missed most of it. And uh, there were other people that were out as well. Uh, Hicks for extended period of time. Gregorius didn't join the team until June or July. It was it was one player after another, but they seemed to keep their nose to the grindstone. And it was just because of the fact that he never used it, uh, the terminology of woe is us or uh, war are we. Uh, the, the, the fact is that uh, he just said, nobody's going to feel sorry for us because we have all these people hurt. We'll just get the job done. And he's been a manager for two years now. And the first year, the Yankees won 100 games. And last year, they won 103. And, and to me, uh, they were on that pace again this year. And, uh, you know, certainly one of the favorites to win the World Series, along with the Oakland A's, who uh, before the se- season even started, uh, going back to spring training, I picked the A's to win the Western Division. I just thought they uh, it was their time to put it over the top in the West. They've got a very strong team. Yeah, we're very excited. And, and I think the thing about winning 97 games, two straight years, 
being in the wild mm-hmm. card game two straight years, that this team is really ready to compete. And I think there's only a handful of teams. If we played 162 games, there was only a handful yeah. of teams that could actually win the World Series. But now in a shortened season, it's kind of anybody's game. So we'll see. And one guy I want to talk to you about that had just an unbelievable year last year is DJ LeMahieu. I mean, he hit 392 yeah. with runners in scoring position. He had an unbelievable season. And, you know, you never know what you're going to get from a guy that played all of his home games at Coors Field because obviously up there a mile high up, uh, it's an advantage hitting in that big ballpark in the, in the, in the air. But what he did last year for the Yankees, tell us about his season. It was truly incredible. Yeah, when he came to spring training, he didn't really have a position. In fact, I don't think he started on opening day. Um, but he ended up playing third base, second base, which is his natural position, and also first base. So he was very versatile. He was the Yankee team MVP for sure. And as you said, his statistics were off the charts. I mean, he was up there in the batting race. Uh, you mentioned how well he hit with runners in scoring position. He hit for power like he had never done before. He drove in 100 runs, which he had never done before. And this is primarily out of the leadoff spot. So I, I just think that uh, – and after this year, he can be a free agent. So the Yankees are going to have to make a decision, which I don't think will be too hard. You, you, you want guys like that to stick around. And uh, the fact that he's versatile. But this year, it seems like he's going to be locked in at uh, second base, which is his former gold glove position. Uh, now that the Yankees have moved Glaber Torres over to shortstop, with Gregorius moving on to the Phillies as a free agent. So I, I just think that uh, uh, maybe he can be even better, hopefully. You know, if he can uh, uh, stay away from the injury bug, which has plagued many of his teammates, uh, this guy is a solid baseball player. I really enjoyed watching him play. Doesn't make many mistakes in the field. Uh, and uh, for a big man, he really turns the double play as, as well as any second baseman in the game. And you mentioned Torres. I mean, this mm-hmm. kid. This kid's talent is off the charts. Yeah, he well, I, he's only 23 years old, so he's got a long way to go. He hit 38 home runs last year. Um, he hit 13 of them against the Baltimore Orioles, which uh, uh, drove their broadcaster, Gary Thorne, absolutely nuts. I, th- I think he had five multi-home run games, and three of them were against the Orioles. Uh, just, uh, he's, he's a tremendous young player, a great young man. And it looks like now he's going to be the Yankees shortstop moving over from second base. Uh, and hopefully uh, from the Yankees standpoint for years to come, and certainly one of the best trades that uh, Brian Cashman uh, made with the Yankees. Of course, they, they traded Chapman to the Cubs. The trade wouldn't have been made unless Torres was involved. And then they got Chapman back as a free agent. So I, I just uh, – uh, uh, the fans love him in New York. He's a very personable young man. And uh, hopefully, uh, like I said, he'll be around for a long, long time. Let's end on this. As you mentioned, uh, Torres beating up on on the Orioles, and that's what the Yankees did. The Yankees were 54-22 and 22 in the AL yeah. last year, the best ever by any team in a division. Just how important is it now in baseball to mop up on the bottom feeders in the game? Well, not only that, your own division in particular, uh, depending on who you're playing in the division. Uh, the Yankees had a winning record against every team in the division last year. Uh, the team that played the best against them was Toronto. Uh, they beat the Red Sox quite handily. They hammered the Orioles. 
went 17-2 and two against Baltimore and didn't lose a game in Baltimore all year. They won all 10 games in Baltimore. And while they were in Baltimore, they hit 62 home runs at Camden Yards in those 10 games. So they just wore out. Uh, they, they, they wore out Baltimore pitching. They hit 62 home runs overall against the Orioles, I should say. They just wore them out. You know, we love popping on MLB.com and watching your guys broadcast. You guys do a tremendous job. And, of course, the Yankees are a a fantastic uh, ball club. But I've been watching you for so many years, and and you're outstanding. And thank you so much for the time. I know you've talked about retirement, but I hope uh, you're going to stick around because you're you're one of the best ones we got in the game. Well, I I appreciate the sentiments. Uh, I, I do love baseball. I've loved it ever since my dad introduced me to the game when I was four years old. But eventually, this is going to have to stop. Um, I I thought that this year might be my last year, but the way things have gone, I I can't go out like this. So I I definitely, if they'll have me back next year, I I would come back. So, um, uh, but if they don't, it's 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 been a nice ride. Uh, I've I've really enjoyed this game. Yes, Network, as you said, uh, probably the best of the regional sports networks to work with. Uh, great people. Although when they come out to Oakland, we work with local people there and they have great crews in Oakland and uh, they help us put on a good show when we're on the West Coast. Ken, be safe. We appreciate the time and hopefully we'll see you in Oakland soon. Thank you. Thank you. Missed it this year, but hopefully next year. You know, we miss you. It's been a while. Oh man. I'm, and I miss baseball. I mean, I miss y'all too, but I mean, just, I miss going to the park. I miss, you know, it was it was also so good for, you know, writing because I'd go to the park, I'd talk to you, I'd talk to the players, I, you know, and somewhere along the line, even if I didn't think that something huge had happened, like somebody would have said something and then that would turn into a piece or that would turn into something I'd think about. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I miss people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's our life. It's what we do and – you know, now we're, you know, we're people, you, you don't get in this business unless you like people. And, and, yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that we're so used to, you know, you got the A's to talk to. I know you go over to Oracle and talk to giants, but then it's talking to the other teams, their manager, their players, and getting to learn so much about baseball. Like I remember standing next to you at Oracle park and you were talking with Jeff Samarja and like Samarja was not having any of it of analytics, and and you were like, really? And I mean, it's it's just those interesting conversations that you yeah. have, and then then you're able to do what I think is back to doing real journalism, where you do have long form articles, and not everything is just a couple paragraphs that we can learn from your writings and what you're what you're finding out when you go to the ballpark. Yeah, and like it's amazing, just like the little things. Like I I talked to. Um, is it Mikey, Mikey Falbum? Is that his name? Mikey, uh, the, the clubhouse tenant. Yeah. Uh, talked to him one time, just like off the cuff about rubbing up balls. And then like did a whole piece one time about just the mud on balls and, you know, talked to him about how he did it and took a video of him doing it, rubbing up the balls with mud before the game. And, um, you know, it's just like the, just like all these little conversations that lead to little rabbit holes that you can get into. I find it I found it hard. I, I'm finding it hard to come up with ideas because uh, I'm just here in my my office, 
you know, staring at the wall a lot. But um, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, there's, we've got Korea is showing us what we can do in America, um, you know, in terms of uh, getting baseball going again. Um, and so I'm becoming I'm becoming more hopeful about uh, about the season happening. You know, we were talking about this earlier here on A's Cast Live that I'm hoping the American players are watching these Korean players because these guys got flair. They got swag. We're bat flipping umpires with these crazy strike three calls. I mean, it's entertainment. These guys are entertaining. And, you know, no one's getting mad. Pitchers aren't throwing at anybody because they bat flip. I mean, it's all about the entertainment. I've enjoyed watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, it's about entertainment and it doesn't seem to be as much about, you know, people here seem to be really concerned about showing somebody up. Um, and you'll notice that, um, when the players bat flip or, or, and the pitchers uh, celebrate too, uh, when the pitchers celebrate, they don't usually, they're not usually looking at the hitter. Um, or the pitcher, they're not looking at their competitor. They're oftentimes looking at their at their teammates. You know, they'll look at their their dugout if they hit the home run. Uh, they'll they'll turn around and do a fist pump and like you know point to somebody uh, you know that did a great defensive play or something. So it, it I think it's very possible to be celebratory like that and still be team culture. Um, and not necessarily be showing up the other player. So I think that's part of what's great about it. Another thing that's part of that's great about the KBO is, yes, you know, the average velocity over there is like 89 miles an hour. It's not the same as ours. They don't have the, quite the same star power because if you are, you know, a big star over there, you can you come over here to, to MLB. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's not quite like watching a ball or something. It's not, they don't, it's not like they don't, they can't command their pitches. It's not like, um, they don't have any approach to the plate. Like they're they're somewhat refined. It's more like watching like Triple A. It's like watching like people who really know what they're doing, really know how to play the game, and maybe are just missing that that extra that that top you know two percent that makes them you know uh, like a star. You know, missing a tiny bit of athleticism or here something here something there. But otherwise, it, it's a pretty good game to watch. And I I, I got to find somebody that's been over there because I got to know. Some of these bat flips are so outrageous. Like, has anybody ever got hurt, like, in the on-deck circle because they got hit by the bat? I mean, that's how crazy <laughs> they, they throw these bats. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like a bat explosion. And, and it, it's funny because they had Eric Thames on uh, talking about it, and they, like, they were like, what about your bat flips? And he said his swing just it wasn't right for it. Because if you look at their swings, a lot of their swings end high. And when they end high, they just sort of, let go of the bat at the end of their swing. Um, and, and that's kind of like the traditional bat flip over there. And, and Eric's swing is not, was not conducive to that. So, uh, yeah, I think that probably it's so, you know, ubiquitous that everyone's like, you know, aware of where to stand because of flying bats. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I have to be honest. After a while, I, I, I don't even notice that there's nobody, there's no fans in the stands. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, with uh, some creative uh, work, audio work, uh, maybe a, a good tape delay, you know a little bit more about this, it being in the business of broadcasting. But I think that we could do some fun things with miking the players up. 
to make make up for the lack of fans. I don't know exactly how we do it, um, but uh, if you did enough of a delay and had had some people on the button, um, <laughs> because they players do tend to curse a lot, <laughs> but uh, um, you know maybe some selective miking. Um, uh, there could be there could be some things that we do uh, to to make up for that. But yeah, I mean. After a while, I was just watching baseball again, you know, with, uh, and it, it's good for me to, uh, you know, one of the things I like about baseball is it's usually on, you know, so it's nice to just have baseball on. Yeah, it's something we also talked about earlier is like, you know, okay, get Korea going, get Japan going, get get NASCAR going, get the PGA Tour going. So Major League Baseball is not the first one to jump in the pool. So they can feel comfortable because we know how conservative baseball is. And mm-hmm. then they have the opportunity. They're the only sport that plays every day. We're going to play yeah. every day. They, they, baseball, if they do it right, they have a chance to get back that national pastime status because you can't play golf every day. You can't do NASCAR every day. Baseball will be playing every day for Americans and people who don't even like baseball will now be watching baseball. Yeah, and I mean, uh, there's still a lot of people. There's a lot of people out of work. There's a lot of people uh, that can't, that, that even if we start opening up, that won't be able to do their specific job. Uh, so there's a lot of people who have this need, you know. There's definitely uh, a need for entertainment. Um, and, you know, to, to I think there's a way to responsibly do it. I, I just think there is. If you look at uh, the numbers on this, like, you know, they, they wouldn't necessarily endanger themselves. And if you can find a way for young, healthy baseball players to play uh, and not endanger other people um, in doing so, then I think then it, it, you can actually do it in a responsible way. And I think that Korea has shown us that a little bit. Um, it does require, um, you know, protecting uh, the most at risk and kind of, you know, in a way separating them from the rest of society uh, until we got this, this thing figured out. And then on top of that, uh, just doing a good job of sort of if someone does get sick, pulling them out, quarantining them and sort of tracing and, and finding out who they've talked to and kind of getting them tested. So, um, yeah, I think we're getting to the point where we can maybe do stuff like that. And the, the biggest question, I think, of course, is if they start up and someone uh, gets sick, what happens then? And, you know, I did ask Dan Straley, who's over in Korea, you know, what he said, what he thought. And he's like, well, I don't know for sure. And I don't think anybody knows for sure, for sure. But the first thing would be like all of baseball takes like, you know, a one or two day break while we test everybody on the team uh, that, that has it. We find out uh, who, who has it on that team. If one or two players have it, then maybe they just go on the DL and we can go on. If it's like 15 and a whole team is down, then maybe all of baseball has to take a two-week break. So, you know, there's obviously um, – it's the same as the rest of society. As we open this up, there's going to be fits and starts, and there's going to be um, – there's going to be – it's not going to be easy. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think it's worth doing it because there's a lot of pain and suffering that's caused by locking down, too. So it's not uh, it's not just a binary thing where, you know, we can continue to do this lockdown forever if we wanted to. I mean, it, there's – it's it's kind of devastating for some people. How is Dan the K-Man Straley? <laughs> He's doing good. He's doing good. He says he feels real healthy. Um, and he was telling me his TrackMan numbers. Um, he was throwing up 24s and 25s, uh, meaning his, his vertical number on his fastball was good. So he's 
you know, he's still doing that deep drive line uh, tech thing. Um, and uh, he says all his pitches are moving while he feels good. And, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see what the, the season brings. He won his first game. Uh, and the Lottie Giants uh, are, they've got also um, Dixon Machado from the uh, Tigers who's out there and Adrian Sampson uh, from the Rangers. So uh, that's their, each team is allowed three foreigners. Um, and that's, that's their group uh, with the Lottie Giants. Hey, Samson had issues with uh, bat flips when the A's were uh, in Texas, and, and he, he uh, didn't like Mark Cannon bat flipping. He better, he better get ready because every one of these dudes bat flips, and you can't, you can't have the American guy getting all heated and throwing at people. Well, I was laughing at that. I thought they would fairly because – Australia's like, yeah, they keep telling me that I got a, I got a fist pump and I got to celebrate if I do a big strikeout. And I mean, you know, Dan Straley, like that's not what you'd expect from Dan Straley, but he says, if I come back doing some fist pumps, that's why. <laughs> oh, you know, it would have been great watching, you know, cause a guy that was animated back in the day and he's one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Pedro Martinez pitching over there would have been a show. <laughs> he would have been moonwalking off the mound. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, the other thing I love about Korea, oh, these games are two hours. Yeah, they are pretty fast. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. I, I, maybe there's not as much. Uh, you know, there's a there's a, a secret uh, reason why the games are so long in baseball and that I've seen is fouling pitches off. Yeah, fouling pitches off. I mean, if you see guys here, they'll just foul pitches off one by one by one. That's, those are extra pitches. And I don't think that I, I see that happen as much in, uh, in Korea. All right, let's get to the important stuff. So you, mm-hmm. did, a beer, you did a beer bracket. Tell me That's about right. how, how you went about it, and did you actually try every one of these beers? Oh, I, I've definitely had every single beer that I put in the bracket. And the, that's actually the idea was because if I did a beer bracket that was more for the nerds, um, then there would be so many beers that nobody had had tried. You know what I mean? Like you, I'd be yelling about Moonraker and Alvarado uh, Street, and somebody from Massachusetts would be yelling about Trillium and uh, and uh, Treehouse, and you know there'd be very few people that had every single one of the beers on one of those brackets, and so it would be impossible to really come to a consensus. You just have little pockets of, you know, people voting against each other. Um, but what I wanted to do was kind of what I called a grocery store beer bracket. And uh, it was basically the kind of beers that you would find at Safeway. And the reason I wanted to do it was kind of twofold. One was we, we all on the same page. We've all had these beers. They're the most popular beers in America. Um, and so therefore we're all on the same footing. I can also pit Coors Light against Sierra Nevada Pale Ale at some point because you know, those are in the same cooler and that can maybe bring some people into this discussion that normally say, Oh, you're just, it's going to be all about IPAs or whatever, you know? And, um, and then lastly, the thing that was cool about it is that in this time, because people wanted to, you know, go to the grocery store less or, uh, you know, have, you know, go out less. What's happening is people are actually buying these flagships more. People are buying grocery store beer more. Um, it, it, they, they maybe have less time to go to the, the, to the liquor store. Maybe the liquor store closed or they don't want to do all these deliveries you can do right now. So, um, you know, I thought, Hey, this is a perfect time to do this. These are cheaper beers too. If people wanted to save some cash. And, um, uh, so in the, I can tell you the final four, I haven't announced the winner yet. 
Uh, but I can tell you the final four. The final four was Guinness, uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, Founders All Day, and Yingling, which we can't really get out here, but that came out of the Coors Light, uh, Bud Light part of the bracket. All right, a couple things. You know, since traveling around with the A's of the Raiders, the thing that I notice at, at, at bars and restaurants is that everybody has their own breweries now. Breweries are the big thing. So mm-hmm. you go into a restaurant or a bar and they have, like, and you know, I'm an IPA guy. I've never heard of any of these beers because they're local. So that's, you know, whether you're in Miami or you're in New York or you're in Minnesota or you're in Seattle or you're in Kansas City, everybody has their own beers and you've never heard yeah. of them but you're from the area. So you make a good point there. Uh, secondly, boy, did you do ballast point and sculpting wrong that's my favorite it's <laughs> way better than pale ale oh man yeah and sculpting had a hard row because it also uh went up against high lie cigar city high lie early you know what what happened was um the all the ipas had a tough time because they were you know i only picked 16 of them um because i wanted to represent the other styles uh you know well and uh, so, you know, it was, if you only pick 16 IPAs, you're going to pick, you know, the best IPAs in the world. So, yeah, Sculpin uh, ended up losing to Sierra, and I voted for Sculpin. Uh, but I don't mind, you know, Sierra is, a, is kind of, what it, you know, a goat, a, a greatest of all time. It's, it's, a, it's the first craft beer I ever had. When I was in college out here, uh, you know, I, I had a, a keg of Sierra at my parties. I remember that. So, you know, I don't mind it uh, being in the final four at all. You, you know, I got I to gotta be honest with you. I think it came out when I was in college. I want to say <laughs> we first started seeing it in the mid-90s. And Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was the first time we were drinking something like this. That wasn't your Bud Light, Bud, mm-hmm. Miller, Miller High Life. It was kind of the first, you know, it was more expensive but you were like, like you said, so I'm a little bit older than you, but like for us, it was like, wow, this is like this. It's, it's from Chico. This is, this is really good. So yeah, I will. Mm-hmm. I, I'll give you that pale ale was the first one. It was the first chic, really cool beer. Yeah. Yeah. And there was that first wave of craft that gave us like Sam Adams and stone and Sierra. Um, and of those three kind of old schoolers, um, I'll definitely take Sierra. My uh, my producer, Cody, is a White Claw guy, and I told him if he ever brought that over to my house, I'd throw it at him. <laughs> uh, I've got some. I've got some hard seltzer. No. I'm, addicted to, I'm addicted to LaCroix, uh, the regular seltzer, uh, but uh, I haven't I haven't gotten that into it. What's in my fridge right now? I got a delivery uh, from some friends in Seattle. Uh, so I got a bunch of stuff from Seattle, and uh, then uh, I got a delivery from Pure Project in San Diego and some Monkish uh, from uh, L.A. So I'm, I'm doing it right. I got Pliny the Elder and Racer mm-hmm. 5. There you go. Some classics. And I probably shouldn't be having that much, but, you know, what's the, you know after I do the show. What, what else are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Smoking down IPAs and watching Korean baseball, baby. That's my life. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you 
Eno, thank you for the time. It is always great. You know, we'll always be promoting your work on The Athletic. Yeah, you're as good as anybody, and we love having you on. And be well, be safe with the family, and hopefully uh, we'll be seeing you soon. Oh, man, I'd love to see you at the park again soon. Well, our next guest here on A's Cast Live is one of my all-time favorite A's, not only for the style of play and how hard he played for the fans, but just also one of the really good guys we've had in this organization multiple times playing for the Oakland A's. And now he's back as a coach for the A's. Adam Rosales is with us. Rosie, how are you down in the Valley of the Sun? (laughs) I'm burning up down here, but it's nice, nice. You know, I, I haven't talked about this a lot, but I and, and nobody really cares. But I, I twice I've thrown out the first pitch. The first time I did it, I did it to you, and it was so much fun. And, and, and it's it's a, an experience that I'll never forget. I had my kids there. It was a wonderful time. Yeah, that was what two thousand ten, probably back in. Well, the first show was with the A's, right? Two thousand. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was your first go around, and. Uh, isn't it crazy how time is just flown by? Is you know we're we're looking at Dallas Braden, the ten year anniversary of his perfect game is 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 today. Isn't that crazy? That is wild. I can't believe how fast that goes by. But you know what? Whenever I'm asked, because that's like the number one question people ask me, besides my home run trot, of course. But it's yeah. what's your favorite? What's your favorite memory of playing this game? And immediately, without hesitation, it's May 9th, 2010, Dallas Braden playing second base behind him. That's my favorite memory of all time playing this playing baseball. At what point are you in the field, you're going, oh, my God, he's got a perfect game? Because you, you don't want to be the guy that screws it up. Right. You know, I try not even let the thought come into my brain. That's how superstitious I was. Um, but yeah, probably around the seventh, eighth inning, like, oh my goodness, you're looking at the scoreboard and you can see how focused and how bad he wants it. And you just, man, he might, he might do this. And then, you know, it comes down to that last pitch when I think it was Gabe Kapler that hit it at Cliff Pennington in short. I, I was so nervous. And I, 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 I'm up in the press box, for God's sakes. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my. And, and when Kapler hit that ball to, to Cliff Painting, I just went, oh, my God, Cliff, don't screw it up. Please, God, don't screw it up. And, of course, uh, Cliff made the play. And it was so special because we know how Dallas lost his mother. His grandmother was there. It was Mother's Day. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't write a better script. No, you couldn't. I mean, that was phenomenal. Just to, and just to be a part of that was unreal. Um, yeah, but you just felt for Dallas that day. Just the emotions that were going on in the stadium at the Coliseum was, you know, completely memorable. And when you think about the Rays at that time, that was a pretty good lineup that, that, that he did that against. Oh, my goodness, for sure. And But if I remember correctly, that was a great lineup. But didn't they get no hit or another perfect game the same or the year afterwards might have been? I forgot, yeah, but it, it, it was, was right always... around the same time. But yeah, but to think of all the they had some they had some all star players, and to think that anybody could no hit a lineup like that is just you you, you got to be deep on that day. You have to be on point against a lineup like that. There's no question. 
you know, the thing about Dallas that I always remember is just how great his changeup was and how, I mean, you would have stopped playing behind him, but how he could just throw that changeup at any time, any count. Yeah, and that's probably the toughest. That was always the toughest pitch for, for me to hit and to me to recognize as a changeup. And just to see that thing work for Dallas was like, it's fun to play behind guys like that. They kind of make guys look foolish at the plate. You're like, dang, I'm glad I'm not up there facing Dallas right now. You know, but he, it was nasty, no question. And as an infielder, you, you like that a guy can pitch to contact. You like that a guy works fast because, you know, so many guys now today, I mean, so many guys are so slow and every single pitch it's max velocity. And there's just uh, there, Adam, there's just a whole lot of standing around in today's baseball. Yeah, it is. I'm obviously pace of game is always uh, something to consider, but I mean, guys like Dallas, but I, mean, I'm, I remember facing a Mark Burley and me having to step out of the box just to slow him down. Because I swear every game he threw was under two hours for sure. But yeah, the, <laughs> The the pace of game is definitely uh, is you know some some yeah you're right some guys standing around that's why they got the pitch clock on us now right for for pitchers and make sure you get back in the batter's box or you get a strike I think that's just in the minor leagues right now though right I'm not sure if that's the, the, the big the, leagues the, the, the the clock is running but nothing's being enforced and and yeah there's no enforcement right yeah hopefully and I think this is kind of what we've seen that when these guys get used to it in the minor leagues. At some point, you know, like Lou Trevino said, I'm used to it. I had it in the minor leagues. At some point when the older players start to retire, I think that's when you can implement it because everybody would have done it in the minor leagues. Right. Yeah, they're, they're familiar with it. There's no, that's a great point. All right, have you been watching the Korean Baseball League? I haven't. I know I'm itching too. Just, uh, no, I mean, uh, it's great to see, though. I saw the headlines, you know, or the – I saw it was starting. I know uh, Jared Hoyings over there. I played with him in Texas, and it was really neat to to see some kind of baseball get back into action. You know, yeah, and 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 really, it's the roadmap for how we get back into it. And but I'm telling you, you got to watch it because these guys, they've got swagger like you wouldn't believe. They're bat. It's the biggest bat flips you've ever seen. And trust me. <laughs> They're not running. They're not running the bases on a home run like you. They're pimping it. Oh man, that's a different. It's a different ball game, right? I don't know. I could never do it. I would be uh, different over there, to say the least. Okay, 10 p.m. on ESPN or ESPN two. You got to flip it on and watch these guys. Because even like the pitchers. So Dan Straley, you know Dan Straley. Dan yeah, Straley. yeah. Uh huh. So we're hopefully going to get him on, but he told Eno Saris of the Athletic that the teams have encouraged him to get excited after strikeouts. So they want everybody to be entertained. Ah, uh, gotcha. So it's more like the entertainment factor, and that's—I mean, the game's changing, right? Like I don't know. We, we we've been talking a lot about like respecting the game in a sense, but I mean, I think that's what people want to see, though. In a sense, you know, a lot of fans enjoy that, but it's like. Uh, for me personally, uh, it would it'd be tough for me to do because I, I wouldn't, you know, you just hit a homer off the pitcher. You kind of want to show that respect still. But if that's what the Korean, like the Korean baseball does and it's for the entertainment, I guess that, that plays, right? 
Well, hey, it, it would be funny. Let's let's see you do one bat flip and see how it is. It would be interesting to see. <laughs> and then to watch you spin around the bases after a bat flip would be fun. I might get drilled. For, I would get drilled for sure. I'd be wearing one right in the ribs. <laughs> You're getting drilled for hustling. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> tell, tell, the, tell the story again how you adopted that hitting the home run and spurting around the bases because fans love it. Oh my gosh. You know, that's obviously that's the number one question, but uh, first home run ever tells was left-handed at a ballpark in Chicago. It was called Phillins. We all wanted to play at Phillins and just, it barely got over the fence, hit it left-handed. I probably had my eyes closed when I did it, went over the fence and I was thinking around at first. I'm like, this is, I'm running slow. And what happened if that ball hit the top of the fence is what my thought process was. And then from there on, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be embarrassed. So from now on, every time I come out of the box, I'm going to hit it like I'm hitting a triple. So I started doing it when I was like 12 or 14 years old. But then it kept it became like a trademark because I went to high school and I went to college. And then I'm like, you know what? If I ever get to play in the major leagues, I'm going to play like I played when I was 12 years old. So it's kind of like a – it became like a tribute to my 12-year-old self of playing the game the right way, at least the game that I knew how to play the right way. Yeah, and, but, and not, not, not only do fans love it, scouts love it, and that was one thing they always loved about Pete Rose and why they called him Charlie Hustle. You played in Cincinnati. I mean, Pete Rose, yeah. when he when he walked, he ran down to first base. He didn't jog. <laughs> I know in Cincinnati they called me Pete Rosales. Pretty funny. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was always running with, <laughs> I was always running with my hair on fire because so much energy. I did not so, know that. That is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. I had a good time with it. Yeah. So, That's so you, you you you've gotten into coaching. How much fun are you having with these young kids? Oh man, it's the best. You know, because it's tough. It's a really tough game, more mentally than physically for me. But just like building the relationships with them, being in the cage and listening to them. Like, I don't. I work with some young kids, you know, in the off season. I started doing like camps and whatnot. And to them, you're like talking and talking and talking. They're probably like shut up. But then you get into the cage with a professional ball player, and you just listen to them and you watch their body language. And they talk, they talk to you. You wait for them to talk to you. And then you kind of just um, say what they said to you. And you just, uh, it's just the, the relationship, that trust that you build with them. Uh, how they kind of coach themselves is pretty remarkable, man. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to really getting to the, the grind with them. You know, it's going to be, I, I know it's going to be grindy for sure, but I, I really look forward to that and helping them and just being there for them and putting the time in for them, watch, studying their videos and getting to know them as, as players and as human beings, you know, like on and off the field. So there's a green team and there's a gold team. And uh, do you say Kevin Kuzminoff is with the gold? <laughs> so, yeah, he's the hitting coach for the gold team. Yeah, it's going to be pretty – it's going to be neat to see because there's two teams in the AZL and you play against each other, I guess. I'm still new to all of this. But I guess you play against each other, and uh, yeah, it's it's fun too. In spring training, I got to see Kuz work as a coach, and listening to him and the things I'm learning about him and what he's saying, you know, 
Like I wish as a player, I would have picked his brain more or other players' brains more to, to enhance my game. But now that you're kind of outside the game, you kind of, you kind of see it from the sidelines and it's, it's more of a, you get to see the whole picture kind of as a coach. What was it like for you to be offered the gig and come back to the A's family? You know, unbelievable. I'm, I'm not sure what I can say, what I can say, like what, but you know, I, I interviewed with a few teams here in Arizona because obviously my family's here and it's, it's really nice to be, you know, I'll be right here get to spend time with Callie and the kids a lot more obviously I haven't done, I haven't been home really like I've always been traveling since I've been 12 years old basically I've been, been away from home so it's really nice to be here with, with my wife and kids but I interviewed with like four or five different teams and I you know I wasn't sure if I was going to get the the role or the job but uh, I talked to Lip and Lip's like we would love to have you on and just welcomed me with open arms I'm like holy smokes like, uh, just, it was just a ton of respect, man. And just like, uh, I've always felt that respect from the Oakland A's and, uh, and I've always, I've always had the respect for this organization. And I, I just love being it. I love wearing the green and gold and being a part of this organization. Well, it's great to have you back and let's end on this, uh, a funny note. Um, Dallas Braden admitted about the perfect game. Uh, finally, 10 years later, he, he admitted that he was hung over going into the start. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, oh, my gosh. I would, uh, that's pretty impressive. I, could, I couldn't imagine playing baseball in a different state of mind, but I guess that really uh, benefited him, obviously, as a playing, pitching a perfect game. Good for him. Hey, and what's crazy is we had him on recently, and I asked him, because they were they were they were airing the game on NBC Sports California, I said, "Have you ever watched it?" And he said, "No, he's never watched his own perfect game." Oh. Wow, that's amazing. I I would think that he would watch that the next night, maybe not the next night, but at least a couple of years later. You know, like kind of like to reflect on it. Um, that's really interesting that he's never watched that. But I'm actually gonna have. I actually do a webinar right now for the youth, for youth baseball. And I'm actually having Dallas on next, next week. Uh, because obviously I know it's the, the, the anniversary. It's, the, it's been a decade since he's thrown the perfect game. But I thought, because Kuz is on the webinar with us, I thought it would be kind of cool to have us just kind of reminisce about it. Um, and he was so, it was really willing to hop on the webinar. And I think a lot of young kids will, uh, might be shocked, <laughs> you know, because obviously, Dallas is a character. I'm not sure how it's going to go, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I really appreciate him taking the time to do it. And I, I just look forward – I always look forward to talking to Dallas, his energy and uh, just the kind of person he is. Uh, it's, it's always a treat, you know. You know, like I said earlier, you're, you're one of my favorite A's that I ever covered. You were always so great to us, and it's great to have you back in the A's family. Be well, be safe, and hopefully you guys will get to, uh, to get to playing baseball pretty soon here. All right, Townsy. Thanks for having me on, man. Great to hear from you. Well, he's a World Series champion, a gold medal winner at the University of California, graduated from Cal, and, of course, was on the 1972 team, A's against the Reds, the Hares versus the Squares. Mike Epstein is with us here on A's Cast Live. Mike, how have you been? Chris, I've been well. I'm retired now and living a good life on 
acreage with horses here in Colorado. Oh, that 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 is great. You know what? You did it right. Well, I hope so. I'm still around to to uh, to tell you. You know, when you look back at 1972, obviously the run starts in 71. You guys make the playoffs. But then you win the World Series in 1972 against the Big Red Machine. Uh, it was a great World Series. We've been we've been airing these games. It's been a lot of fun. What do you remember back from 1972? Well, you know, uh, it's hard to forget anything about 1972, especially when you won the World Championship. But um, it, it was it was it was a fantastic year. A bunch of great teammates uh, we all got along really well and um you know when you have that kind of chemistry the talent seems to flow and uh, everybody was picking everybody else up you know in the late innings and it was great dick williams did a great job uh really yeah he's a great manager and he uh he was the right guy for the kind of ball players the teammates i had at that particular time and uh, what we've learned is you guys were kind of a crazy bunch. Well, you know, that's that's what they say. Uh, but uh, I don't know how crazy we were. We, I, I think they blew a little bit out of proportion. But uh, there, we, had, we had some great times. <laughs> Talk about the, the kind of team we had uh, uh, in uh, 1972. I remember we played in Anaheim. And... Uh, we had a game that went, uh, I don't know, 15 innings. And the next day we had a doubleheader in New York, a day doubleheader. And so we didn't get on the plane till about 2 o'clock in the morning at, at uh, LAX. We, nobody slept. We played cards and told jokes all night and uh, got into New York about 9 or 10 o'clock and out, went straight to the ballpark, put on our uniforms, went out, played the Yankees in a, in a doubleheader, and uh, – uh, we beat him uh, in the, both games in the doubleheader by shutouts. And after the game, the New York writers couldn't believe it. They said, gee, talking to Dick Williams, they said, uh, tell me, Dick. He's, he said, uh, were you surprised that these guys came out and played so well with no sleep? Dick looked at him deadpan and said, are you kidding? They don't ever get any sleep. This is just a normal routine for him. <laughs> <laughs> also special in your career. Because I've been to Tokyo twice with the A's. What was it like winning the gold medal in Tokyo in 1964 as, as you're coming out of Cal? Well, I, I'll tell you, it, it, one of the greatest moments that, uh, in my life was when we opened up against uh, Japan in their baseball stadium. And it was, you know, it had like 70,000 people in that stadium. Wow. It was packed. And uh, we're sitting there in the dugout, and all of a sudden they start playing the national anthem. So we stood up and, uh, you know, put our right hand over our left heart salute. And uh, I'll tell you what, I never in my life have ever felt so proud to be an American. They're on foreign soil, them playing the national anthem in front of 70,000 foreigners. And I just stood there and I just, uh, the hair on the back of my, my neck just, just stood up. I almost had tears in my eyes. That was, that's the one thing about uh, being in the Olympics uh, and, of course, winning. But 
that was great. But that one moment, uh, I was so proud to be an American that um, it's still uh, it's something I've never forgotten. Yeah, that's a great story because you hear it from so many Olympic athletes that they say that when you represent your country in a foreign country, what it means to you. And uh, that's a great story. I want to tell you, there's a new book out. Jared Diamond has a book out uh, called Swing Kings. And you're mentioned in this book. I don't know if you know that. It's kind of a, a really popular baseball book right now. Uh, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen that one. I, I've seen a few of them. Uh, they're great, and they, they bring back a lot of great memories for me. Well, and they talk about your relationship. Well, you played for Ted Williams, and you had a great relationship with arguably the greatest hitter of all time. What was it like being around Ted Williams? Well, you know, you're, at first I was in, in awe of him. In fact, we became very, very good friends after I retired. He had retired in Florida. But uh, it wasn't always that way. Uh, we, we battled here and there about different things. And I questioned this that he'd say, and he'd question, you know, he'd give me an answer. And he'd say, what are you questioning me for? I'm the world's greatest hitter. And, uh, but we used to, we'd go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But uh, it, it wasn't, I mean, it, Ted was Ted. Uh, you, if you caught him on a good day, he was, Probably the nicest uh, person you'd ever want to meet. Uh, very gregarious and funny, and but if you got him on a, a, on the wrong day, or you said one thing that he didn't like, and he just he just go off on a tangent. But um, he was great, uh, and uh, that's where after I retired, I wanted to really pick his brain about hitting technique and stuff like that, and. We got to talking uh, one day uh, at his home down in Florida because I was down in Florida on business. And uh, he, I was going to stay one day, and I wound up staying three days at his home. And we just kept talking to him. And he said, you you got to stay on this, Mike. He says, you got one of those kind of brains that just – and you can teach this stuff. He said, And so we developed that the friendship that way. And uh, I probably met with him uh, four times a year for almost 10 years down in Florida when I go down there. And, um, uh, and, and I, I'll tell you the, the most interesting thing about everything uh, when it comes to hitting was all the stuff that he taught me. And then I took a lot of his things uh, further because uh, by the time that I was uh, he was mentoring me, uh, you know, stop frame video action, slow video, slow motion video was out. You could see things in the swing that the human eye wasn't fast enough to see. And um, so I took all this stuff, all, all of his knowledge uh, and built on it. And then I went out and tried to uh, tell people that this is a, a way better hit way to hit than uh, swinging down and swinging down for backspin and hitting ground balls and stuff. That wasn't uh, biomechanically correct. It, it just goes against everything that the body really wants to do to achieve things. And uh, everything that players are doing today is what I brought to the game. Uh, trying to teach people uh, how, to, how to hit this way. And I tell you what, you talk about a salmon swimming upstream. There, I, 
nobody wanted to listen to me. In fact, I uh, worked for the Milwaukee Brewers for a while, and they fired me because they didn't like what I was teaching. But today, everybody's doing what I was teaching. But it was the wrong time. Timing was wrong. Well, I know exactly what you're talking about. Trying to change anything in this game, it's like, oh, it's like pulling teeth. Everybody's so conservative. No one wants to change. No one wants to change the game. You know, we're watching. I don't know. Have you gotten a chance to watch the Korean Baseball League on ESPN? Yeah, I have. They're playing games that are two hours. Our games are now three hours and 45 minutes. All those World Series games you played in were under three hours. It's like it's like we need, there's things that need to change in baseball. And, yes, the evolution of the swing, you were a part of that. And to think Ted Williams helped change the game, and he's still – you and Ted are changing the game. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I had opportunities to be uh, – hitting coaches at the major league level eight eight with eight different teams and i never got any of those positions uh after they said you got it you're going to be our hitting coach uh, and i said why i said because you got fired from milwaukee and they have a do not hire uh you know uh, thing against you and so major league baseball they just blackballed me for teaching what everybody's what I want that teaching that everybody's doing today. So that, that, that's how the game works. It's sort of like a clickish kind of thing and, you know, a country club. And, uh, I, but I have, uh, it, it, it was great. I, I have no problems uh, with how everything turned out. Uh, my son now is running the baseball school that we have and, uh, he's doing absolutely great teaching the same things that I was teaching. And of course the way it's supposed to be is, Ted taught me, I built on the things that Ted said, made it better because of the, uh, the technology that was available. And now my son has taken my stuff and taken it to a new level. So that's the way it's supposed to be. So he's on the, the, the leading edge, the cutting edge of everything going on and hitting today. And um, I'm really proud of him. You know, that, that, that is really a new thing in baseball to where pitchers and hitters are going to outside coaches that are not at the major league level that have a lot of these different uh, baseball schools, boy, has the world changed. Because years ago, you never would have saw that. Well, you know, you wouldn't. Um, uh, And it's just, it's really weird how how things happen. Uh, Most hitting coaches get hired because they have a personal relationship, you know, with the manager and, you know, drinking buddies go out and have a good time and stuff like that. And I understand that, but it doesn't do anything for the players because a lot of the people who become hitting coaches, you know, really shouldn't be hitting coaches. In fact, to show you how overrated hitting coaches were in, in, uh, uh, in major league baseball, there weren't any major league hitting coaches until 1972, I think that were, you know, solely coaches to teach hitting because like Ted Williams used to tell me, he says, how does everybody learn? He says, the way they learn is they mimic the great hitters. They copy what they do. They see them. And he says, the technique becomes very singular. There's nothing. Everybody uses the same 
technique, but what's different is the style. Everybody has a, every hitter has a different style, hands high, hands low, open stance, close stance, wiggle this, do that. You know, and, but once they get into that launch position, the technique is the same for everybody. And uh, uh, that's how, Ted said that that's how you learn. I remember when I was a, uh, <clears throat> after I was a minor league player of the year coming up at Baltimore, we're down in spring training. And Gene Woodley, who was an old Yankee outfielder, uh, was was a coach uh, with the Orioles, and uh, I I wasn't doing really well in spring training. And he says to me, "Is you in a slump?" And I said, "I must be." I said, "Trying to buy a hit here." He he said, "I said, what did you do, Gene? You know, when you went in a when when you you and the Yankees your teammates went into a slump, and he said, oh, we go out and have four or five Manhattans." Come in, come in, come back in the clubhouse the next morning, sit in the hot tub uh, for about 20 minutes at 104 degrees, and the trainer would come in and put a heavy wool blanket on top of you. You just sweat it all out the next next day. He says that's how we that's how we broke out of slumps in those days. So, <laughs> what can I tell you? So, any coaches have been overrated over the years. There have been some good ones, I'm sure, and there have been some that shouldn't have been, you know, hitting coaches in the first place. But it's like politics, you know. You hire your friends, the people that you get along with, but irrespective sometimes of the experience they may have for that particular uh, job function. Mike, this was a real treat. I, I know our A's fans are going to absolutely love it, and we'd love to have you back on and talk hitting again. Thank you so much for the time. Be safe on the ranch, and uh, hopefully we'll get baseball back soon and we can have you on the program. Thank you, Chris. Enjoyed it. Well, our next guest is a legend in our game. He's a three-time manager of the year. He's a World Series champion, a gold medal in the World Baseball Classic. Jim Leland is back on the program. How are you, Jim? Well, I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing well, and we know you still work for the Detroit Tigers, but I want to ask you, you know, because we're watching all these classic games, and I think people really forget in 1997 just how talented your Florida Marlins were. I look back on that team, and your team was stacked. Yeah, we really had a good team from top to bottom. We were deep. We had a good bullpen. We had good starting pitching. Uh, anchored by Kevin Brown, Al Leiter, Alex Hernandez. Uh, yeah, we were we were good. And, of course, LeVon Hernandez came up that year and was a wonder for us. So, uh, yeah, we had a good team, a really good team, a combination of veterans and some younger players. And, uh, you know, I, I really believe that we were the best team that year. When we played Cleveland in the World Series, That they had one of the best offenses I've ever seen in my entire managerial career. But <laughs> we thought we'd be able to score maybe in that series against them. And we were a few games and in other games, they, they held us down pretty good. And it's rated as one of the great world series of all time, obviously coming down to the very end. And I, I, I just look at you, you, you did have also some players that were in their prime. <clears throat> no, no question about that. You know, we, we had Gary Sheffield there at the time, you know, he was, he was an excellent, excellent player. We had Jim Eisenreich, who was a veteran player. Good player. We picked up Darren Dalton late in the season, who was a terrific player. Uh, Charles Johnson, young, outstanding defensive catcher that had some power. Devon White, a veteran center fielder. And then, of course, the youngster, Edgar Renneria, 
at short, Bobby Bonilla at third, Moises Alou in left. I mean, this was really a good team. Like you say, it was a combination of some veteran guys with some young guys. Yeah, isn't that the way to build a team is you're going to have veterans, you want to have guys in their prime, and then you want some youth, you want some young guys to keep you fresh. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. I think you got to break guys in. If you can break a guy or two in every year, I think that's really the way to do it, if you can. Uh, the Oakland A's have done a great job at that. They've brought, they've, uh, broken in some young players over the years. They've done a great job out there, by the way. Uh, you know, they've had some veterans, and they've, they've made some good trades. they made some smart signings. Uh, they've done a terrific job with, uh, you know, not as much payroll as a lot of the other teams, hardly any of the teams. So I think right now, to be honest with you, I think Tampa Bay Rays and, and the Oakland A's are kind of the model that all the young general or all the general managers are looking for right now. Yeah, the, the way this game is, you know, for so many years, it was about payroll. And if you didn't have payroll, you didn't have a chance. Uh, you, 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 you didn't have a chance coming out of spring training. And really, Billy Bean and Moneyball and changing the way we view the game has allowed some of these teams who don't generate a lot of revenue to be able to compete. Yeah, they, you know, the, the, the big difference is a team like the Oakland A's, they really can't like when I was with the Pirates, the same thing. You really can't afford to make a mistake. If, if you've got a team like the Red Sox or the Yankees, they can go out and sign a guy. Maybe it doesn't work out. They can cover that up and go out and sign somebody else. But with teams like Oakland, Tampa Bay, Pittsburgh in the old days, teams like that, you couldn't cover it up. If you made a mistake, you were kind of stuck with it and you really couldn't do anything about it. But some other teams could, you know, they could compensate for that because of the payroll and, and you know, the, the intake of money that they had. Uh, you know, they could kind of cover up a mistake. Well, just one more on the Marlins. I, I, I did an interview with Rob Nen, and Rob Nen was so disappointed. He was like, you know, that group, you know, you're a wild card team. You win the World Series. But he was like, the confidence that that team had, he really believed there was another championship or two in the future of that team if you keep it together. Well, you know, it's hard to say. We would have won one for sure, but I, I definitely think we'd have been in the postseason. I think we'd have got back to postseason. Once you get there, you never know for sure what's going to happen, but we had all those guys were signed, and they were really signed to pretty good contracts at the time. We had them kind of signed long term, and of course, uh, you know, we had, we destroyed the team. We you know we let guys go. We traded everybody, and you know everybody knows that story. But you know, hey, that's life. That's part of it, and you you know you understand that kind of stuff. But we were the real deal, and we would have been strong competition, I think, for the Braves for the next few years. We had guys signed at pretty good prices for quite a while. And looking at 2020, the Detroit Tigers, you're still with the organization. Last year was obviously a, a rebuild. They're 47 and 114. It's really tough to lose 114 games. But the thing that you get to see their minor leaguers, they've got some real promise coming up, don't they, with a lot of pitching? Yes, they do. Well, I think we're one of the, uh, probably one of the most pitching wealthy uh, organizations in the minor leagues right now. We got some guys that this has really hurt what's going on this year because we have those guys like Mize and Manning and people like that. That and this kid Scooble that has really come on and turned things around. We we got a lot of guys. A kid named Fiedo, uh Perez that we traded in the Houston deal with uh, with Verlander. You know these guys were all uh, just a little ways away and they needed to really get that at least probably the first half of the season at AAA under their belt or possibly even a full year at AAA, but they're all the real deal. Believe me, they're good. And they, they got a chance to really be good. So pitching will carry you a long way. We're still a little short on position player. Maybe we don't really have that one position player unless it, uh, Riley green does it, but he's going to be a little while yet. He was drafted a year ago and really, 
good, good looking hitter. So, you know, we're pitching rich right now and that's a good start. So, uh, we have the first pick in the draft this year. Uh, we'll see how that plays out, but, uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're doing, we're taking a beating. We took a beating last year, like teams that are rebuilding do a lot of the times, but I don't think we're uh, very far away from starting to really compete in the central. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, Jim. You know, not not too long ago, the the Astros were so bad we nicknamed we nicknamed them the Lastros, and now all of a sudden you look. I mean, it, it's really the exact same model, and we've we've seen highlights of Casey Mize. Just how good is he? Well, he's a real deal. I mean, he's got excellent, outstanding stuff, and he's got. I think what gets him puts him a little above some of the other guys is. Uh, he's not as overpowering as a Manning or somebody, but uh, his ability to pitch. I think, you know, college was probably really good for him. He, he pitched in the SEC, I believe, and at Auburn. And uh, so, you know, I think his experience in learning how to pitch really helped him because he's, he's a guy with really good stuff, but he's a pitch maker. He has the ability to make a pitch. And uh, sometimes it takes, you know, younger pitchers a while. They have to learn some things in the big leagues you know, before they can do that. But this guy's going to come to the big leagues with the ability to make a pitch. Miguel Cabrera, obviously the past couple of years with his health and he has struggled and, you know, the reports from down in Florida that, that, you know, he's in better shape and that he was starting to have a pretty good spring training. He's 23 home runs away from what? 500. Um, He's truly one of the great players of his generation. What are your expectations for Miggy this year? Well, I think he's going to do well. I, I don't think you're going to see the power numbers like 44, 45, like he's done in the past. I don't think you're going to see that again. But I think you, you know, you're going to see some home runs. I think he'll hit quite a few home runs, but I don't think he'll hit 40, 45 anymore. But I think he will hit close to 300. Uh, he's going to get his hits. He's a great hitter. He's still a great hitter, and he still has a chance to knock in a lot of runs for us. So I think Miggy's going to really do well this year. You know, a lot of times people say, "Well, he's in, he's in, he's in better shape this year." Well. A lot of times, you know, maybe he wasn't in his best shape because he was hurt. And a lot of times he wasn't able to keep himself in the shape that he wanted him to. This year, he's healthy, got himself in great shape, and he really looked good this spring. And I was impressed because he was getting to the fastball much, much better and hitting it out of the ballpark in spring training some and driving the ball again. So I think Miggy's going to have a real good year. It's not going to be a triple crown type year like he did in the past, but this guy's one of the great players of all time. You know, when I think back to 2012 and 2013, those are very special years for the A's. And then, unfortunately, we ran into you and Justin Verlander. <laughs> uh, looking back at those two series between the A's and the Tigers, what do you remember from 2012 and 2013? Well, they, they were great games. I mean, both series went five games, which is the way it should be. And, uh, you know, we had to win in Oakland, which is a tough place to to play, particularly in the postseason. I don't think I've ever heard a stadium louder than when we played out there. But, you know, to be honest with you, that was really, uh, for two straight years, it was really the Justin Verlander show. That's just what it was. I mean, he was absolutely phenomenal uh, in both those starts against Oakland. And really, uh, he carried us. Maybe he hit a big home run, uh, you know, in that uh, last series. But, uh, you know, it was really the Justin Verlander show, those, those two playoffs. 
Yeah, and, and you just knew, right? It's game five, it's Verlander, and you're like, oh, boy. I mean, th- that had to be a nice ace in your back pocket to know that in, in the clinching game, you got the big right-hander. No question about it. You know, it felt real comfortable, obviously, going into the game the first year, and then the second year felt the same way. Uh, you know, you, you knew that runs were going to be scarce. Uh, there wasn't going to probably be a lot of runs scored, and you knew that Verlander was going to be pretty stingy. So, uh, you know, we felt like we had a great chance. I'm sure they felt like they had a great chance. And they were they were great games. I mean, these, these weren't runaway games. These were exciting, really good baseball games. When you think about Justin Verlander, do you think he'll get to 300 wins? Uh, I don't know about that. I'm not sure exactly what he has right now. What's he got right now, do you know? It's like 220-something, I think, right around. He's close to 230. All right, close to 230. He's got 70 more. Uh, I think possible, but probably unlikely. Uh, I, I would say probably unlikely that he gets to 300, but he's going to get enough to go to the Hall of Fame, I think, on the first ballot. Oh, I, yeah, to me, I, to, you know, obviously we, we've watched his dominance against the A's, and, of course, Detroit trades him in our division to Houston, so he's still uh, uh, serving us our lunch. Uh, I, I think there's no question he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think so as well. You know, he's great. He's got, you know, he's had a lot of strikeouts. He's pitched a lot of innings. I remember people telling me when he was in Detroit, oh, you're pitching him too many pitches. That Well, he's still pitching. You know, pitchers are made to pitch. I don't believe in all that stuff about the pitches. The Scherzer and him, they said, oh, you're, you're pitching him too much. Well, they're both still pitching. They both still have dominant stuff, and I think it's because they pitched. I mean, pitchers are supposed to pitch, and that's why they call them pitchers. And I think that we probably have a tendency to baby the pitchers a little bit too much in the minor leagues now. We're so conscientious of everybody getting hurt. And, you know, I I don't think that, you know, five innings and a three-to-two game and the starting pitcher leaves, I don't think that's a good performance. And a lot of people do now. I do not. Uh, I can't agree more, and I think that's one of the things that last year's World Series – kind of brought back as everybody's been talking about bullpenning and openers and everything that the Astros against the nationals, those are two teams built on their starting staffs. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, you know, your, your best bullpen is a, is a seven inning starting pitcher. That's your best bullpen. So, you know, a lot of people, I mean, and I, anyway, that's what I think anyway. And I think you saw that last year, you know, a couple of years ago, everybody was talking about the bullpen, the bullpen, the bullpen. Oh, use them early. Use them at the crucial time. Blah, blah, blah. Use them early in the game. Well, you know, that might be that might be something that works temporarily. But if you don't have good starting pitching that's going to keep you in games and go deep into the game, you're not going to win a pennant, in my opinion. I, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Jim, it's always an honor to have you on the program, and especially at a time like this. Be safe, and uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you, and we'll be talking a little baseball and get get this going in 2020. Well, we hope so, and you guys stay healthy out there. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.